Slipknot's coming. Slipknot's coming. Slipknot is coming. You have a lot of I have a chain of pain. The fuck was in my bones. The pain was always by. You have a lot of time. I have a chain of time. The fuck was in my bones. The pain was always by. the original formation in 1995 of what would become Slipknot, the band has set out heads down, horns up to challenge the music industry. It's now been almost 20 years since Slipknot has been unleashed on the world in 1999 with their self-titled debut album. This notumentary is about the band, their music, message, goes, and inspiration. The story is told through their fans, news stories, sound clips, classic interviews with the band, live concerts, radio interviews, and much more. In 1999, there was a surge of original conceptual artists. The Billboard charts had changed. A white rapper named Eminem had taken the top spot in rap when 90 days ago this feat was unimaginable. With the lingering hatred for Ice Ice Baby and Vanilla Ice still so prevalent in the music culture lexicon. Even the Beastie Boys were forced to hide behind instruments and kind of be a grunge band. Two clowns, literally two painted clowns from Detroit named Insane Clown Posse had taken the number four spot on the Billboard Top 200. They also appeared at Woodstock. Rammstein, a German metal band with a fondness for fire and simulated sex on stage, have become an established act. Thanks to Family Values 1998, the musical festival Family Values was thanks to Korn, who along with Marilyn Manson, Rob Zombie, Nine Inch Nails, Guar, and many more helped to change the music industry. The once bogged down radio landscape had flipped. The airways seemingly days ago were owned by the Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, and had now sunk to the depths of Mandy Moore, Willa Ford, and LFO to fill their radio's 24-7 rotation demands. We're now playing real metal, real rap, not Coolio or Puff Daddy. These tunes were metal and rap with integrity, story, meaning, something to sink your teeth into that felt more hearty than the disposable pop rock that had saturated the FM stations since Nirvana ended and Pearl Jam got bored five years earlier. Never had they made more profit than this era. It wasn't Elvis, The Beatles, Led Zeppelin, Garth Brooks, Celine Dion, or any of those names. It was Korn, Limp Biscuit, Linkin Park, Slipknot, and many others that led the way for the most popular time in music ever. This change in the airwaves allowed for more aggressiveness, more artists being artists. Music was so to it. It wasn't pre-approved by music industry minds. Those minds were usually 60-year-old, white-collar guys with the George Jefferson haircut. It was written by kids with ideals, plans, goals, inspiration to change the world. No release summed up the epitome of the musical movement more than Slipknot. In 1999, Slipknot was unleashed on the earth. 20 years later, the world is still battling with its sickness. This is a different sort of wildlife. This is Slipknot.
Welcome to Not Umentary, right here on the Homer's Radio Network, exclusively through homersradio.com. You can also find them on anywhere you listen to podcasts, just iTunes, Podbean, Google Play Music, anything like that. Just search HRN, the Not Umentary will be there for you. My name's Brandon Ward. I'll be bringing you the not Umentary. It's going to be a nine-chapter biography of the band Slipknot. It's going to cover everything from when they began in 1995 all the way up to modern-day era. It's almost been 20 years since the 1999 debut release of the self-titled album. Figured it's a good time to put together a nice little timeline documentary to wrap things up for the next 20 years, hopefully. So let's get into it. In 1995, in Des Moines, Iowa, Slipknot's very inceptions began. All the members that would make up Slipknot currently were in other bands as Joey was in Modifidious, Clown was in Heads on a Wall, Paul was in Vex. They also had a different singer in 1995 named Anders Kosefny, who I, I really dig his vocal styles. I really wish he would have stuck around once they added Corey to the band because I think he'd have, he'd have brought a really good dynamic with two different vocalists like Anders and Corey in the band. But we'll, we'll hear from some of the uh, songs from Anders' era as we move on through this. Of course, in 1996 was the first time anybody really heard of Slipknot. Is on Halloween 1996, they released their debut slash demo. They referred to it as a demo. It was released on Halloween 1996 called Mate, Feed, Kill, Repeat. The tracks were Slipknot, Gently, Do Nothing, Slash, Bitch Slap, Only One, Tattered and Torn, Confessions, some feel and killers are quiet. What I'm going to do now is play a little bit from the title Slipknot from Mate, Feed, Kill, Repeat.
the first times that anybody ever really got to hear what was going to become of Slipknot and what they were developing that sound into right there in Des Moines, Iowa, as it was the early days. Like I said, 1996 is when that album came out. And speaking of 1996, they were actually, like I said, all the uh, members of Slipknot were in other bands and future singer Corey Taylor, of course, was in Stone Sour as well. What I've got right here is Corey Taylor on stage during a Stone Sour performance mentioning Slipknot and they were going to be in a battle of the bands. And there you hear Corey Taylor talking about a battle of the bands that Stone Sour and Slipknot were both going to be competing in. Slipknot, by note, beat Stone Sour in that battle of the bands. As we'll move it on to some more 1996. As uh, Actually, it's going to be 1997. As right whenever 1997 turned over, Corey joined the band. And Anders, he stuck around for a little while, but felt that they brought Corey in to replace him, which... If you really listen to the difference between Anders and Corey, I don't think they really intended to replace Anders completely with Corey. I think Corey was brought in to do the more melodic things and have more of a singing voice. I think Anders, they were going to keep him with all the, uh, you know, the metal voice and the uh, the really deep thrasher voice that he, he excels at, in my opinion. And uh, by 1997, they were really starting to develop from the sound that you heard in 1996 as you heard that Slipknot track. It sounded like Slipknot. You could tell Slipknot had their hand in it, but they haven't. They hadn't fully developed what they were going to be yet. They hadn't turned into that. But by 1997, they were really starting to put things together. And here's a 1997 version, probably the first ever version of Spit It Out. This is a new one. This is called Spit It Out. Give a damn in the first place. Maybe it's on you when the table turns. Can the answer to fall about it? And the problem is up. First, you'll be mad. I got my soul away. 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 Mad. Gonna make it there. 
And there you hear Spit It Out, the very first ever version of it, 1997. So like I said, they had really started to perfect the Slipknot sound in that year of 1996. Mate, Feed, Kill, Repeat came out. And then to this time, whenever they had really advanced to that sound that you heard on the self-titled debut. But what I'm going to do now is every chapter, of course, this is chapter zero. This is going to be nine chapters for the nine members of Slipknot. And with each corresponding chapter number, I'm going to talk about that member of the band. Of course, Zero is Sid Wilson of the band, the DJ, DJ Starscream as well. And what we're going to do now is hear how Sid became a member of Slipknot. So that's how you got into Slipknot is the DJ skills. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I uh, started going to Chicago to study DJs. And um, I would go there every weekend. I'd drive there. I'd jump in the trunk of a car if I had to, if there wasn't room in the car. I, I literally did that. In the like, trunk? Yeah, trunk. In the yeah. trunk, yeah. Like, like lay down in the trunk with the right, like table. Right, I'd be like, you know, they'd be like, we're going to the party. And I'm like, dude, I got to go, I got to go. You know, and there's no room in the car. I said, is there anything in the trunk? And they're like, no. I'm like, okay, I'm going to get in the trunk. And they're like, what? I'm like, yes, I'm getting in the trunk. Turn the radio <laughs> off. I'd sit in there and just smoke joints and hot boxes. <laughs> they literally open the, they literally open the trunk at the gas station and I'd, just to be funny I'd scream at them shut the trunk what are you doing you know, like, shut the trunk so I I'd see uh, and he just got out and started running yeah but I'd studied tracks a lot I really like tracks and uh, his name's Mel and he's missing his two front teeth and uh, I always wanted to buy him two gold teeth for Christmas all I want for Christmas is my two front teeth right um, I'm still trying to make that happen one day for him uh, he'll love that. Um, but so you got a couple he's, of he's ill DJ. He would do stuff, turn around backwards, not looking, um, you know, back and forth, like needle drop, needle dropping on beat. What? The needle drop is when you put the needle down between two grooves on beat without listening to it in the headphones. It's, it's, it's near impossible. It's so hard. Only old school guys can do it like Grandmaster Flash, you know, like. Um, so I would study him. Um, but he didn't scratch, but he hung out with, uh, he would like for intro cues and stuff, but right. like simplistic. Um, but he hung out with, uh, these dudes, Halo and Justin Long. And Justin had a similar style to track, so I started studying him. And he was... The history. Right. So, and then Halo was like way, uh, Justin and tracks are more aggro and just real... You know, aggressive, and then these great moments of beauty in between all of the aggression, where Halo was like this kind of angelic, like finely tuned thing. But Halo scratched. So I started seeing him scratch by watching them because he would DJ at parties with them. They were like the Teamsters, they called themselves. And uh, you got the scratching history. Yeah, so I watched him <laughs> scratch, and then they were friends with this guy called Danny the Wild Child, and he was a jungle DJ. They were like, You got to see this jungle DJ we know that scratches because I played jungle, and they played house. So I was learning how to mix jungle by watching house DJs, and they were like, you got to see Danny. So I saw Danny, and I started, that, that got me into a whole bigger network of other jungle DJs to study. Yes. You know, so 
the scratching came in big at that time, and then I started playing a lot of parties, playing the anywhere three to thousand to seven thousand kids, co-headlining, and then the band hit me up. You know, they were like, they wanted a DJ in their band, and everyone they talked to about it in town was like, you know, this is the dude that's right. making moves. You know, like, you're a heavy, yeah, yeah, aggressive. So, they they came for me, you know. They, and you're like, and you're like, yes. I went and saw a show first, and then I was like, and they were wearing masks back then yeah. too. Yeah, clown okay. was trying to tell me, you know, like we're crazy, we're crazy, <laughs> we wear masks. I'm like, okay, I got it. Yeah, mask crazy, gotcha. And he kept saying it over and over, like I don't think you get it. I'm like, no, I don't think you get it. Like I'm crazy, fool. Like I got it, you know. And they, he didn't understand, you know. What yeah. I mean? So I went, you had I went and watched. And right. He said that I'm a giant. <laughs> so I, I, <laughs> I go, I go, and I watch uh, my first Slipknot show, which also happens to be the first show that Ross Robinson goes to see. He produced Corn and Lip Biscuit and uh, Sepultura and Slipknot. Yes. You know? So I, I don't even know who the guy was. You know what I mean? I'm like. Cool. Who? What's up, you know, Here, I didn't even meet him. I didn't even know he was oh. there. They, you know, they were very private about shit, so they weren't trying to even tell me what was going on or anything. Um, so they're playing, and Clown decides there's a song called "Tattered and Torn," and he comes off the stage on that song and gets, you know, physical with fans. You know, it was like a Slipknot thing back in the day. Right. They'd go down in the pit and they'd wrestle him, and he'd wrap a microphone cord around him, no like drag him across the floor. And That's like lawsuits now. Do crazy stuff. This is like back punk yeah. rock days. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> he ain't allowed to do that shit now. Can't do it now. Hell no. <laughs> People are sensitive um, now. So he decides he's gonna come down off the stage after me, and he starts a song. He goes, "Kill me." Fucking, yeah, it's like just this crazy shit. So he come, he's, I see it, I can see it. You know, my dad fucking raised me. I can see, it's like, yeah. yeah. You got special I got the powers. hundred yard stare. That's, a, that's a that's a military thing. My dad taught it to the me. The hundred yard stare. Yeah, I fucking got it. So I see this fool, <laughs> and he's and he's, uh, you know, he just made like started to make a movement from around his drums, but I can sense it, I can feel it, I can see it. So I just start coming over shoulders of people, you know, I'm like, whoo, like hop, 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 scratch. You're like, we can do this. Yeah, so I like, I'm coming over, I'm getting there as fast as I can, man. And uh, I'm a old punk rocker too, so I know how to get through the crowd. And he, uh, before he gets, he's up to the front of the stage, and he's not off the stage yet, he's right at the front by the monitors. And I'm right there. And I pull up, and I grab his head, and I just, Start headbutting him as hard as I can. No, you yeah. <laughs> I grab him by the head and I'm like, bam, 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 bam. I headbutt him six times. Oddly enough, that's his number six. All, everyone in the band's got a number. I'm right. a zero. Um, so I get him. Is zero really a number though? That's that's the one I chose. Okay. You know what I mean? That's a deep thing too. Any, you know, but anyway, that's yeah. Anyway, <laughs> so I, I I headbutt him six times. He pushes me away. You know, he pushes himself away, like falls back on the stage, and he crawls back to the drums. And and he'll tell you, you know, you can ask him. Like he was like, this dude was trying to kill me. Like, I was trying to knock him out. <laughs> I was gonna knock him out. You're fucking aggressive. So and you can do that. You can just a hard party. Was he, and he was wearing a helmet or a no, face mask. mask. Yeah. yeah. He went back to Joey, and he was like, I don't care what anybody says. That dude's in the band. <laughs> <laughs> That's my initiation. <laughs> Damn. And what year was that? 97? Whoa. 98? 97, 98. And there you hear Sid's story of how he joined the band. I love it. That 
clown responded to him trying to knock him out literally with head bunts by going back up on the stage. Well, crawling back up on the stage because he's knocked Loopy by Sid, headbutting him in the crowd six times. Crawls up there, tells the band, I don't care what the fuck you say, this guy's in the fucking band. And that just set off the uh, the craziness that is known as Sid Wilson. And I think the most famous thing to uh, describe that is in the uh, at the Mayhem Fest. Sid, of course, if you've ever seen Slipknot Live or a uh, YouTube video of one of their live performances, that dude has Spinal Tap 11 energy throughout the entire thing. He jumps off of things. He's running throughout the entire show. I have no idea how he does it. But one time he broke both heels doing it. So we're going to hear about Sid describing that. Yeah, I, uh, as people know, if you're a fan of our band, uh, I'm quite active on stage regularly. And uh, after the break, um, the first show coming up, uh, I didn't take uh, as many precautions as I should have, probably, uh, such as um, sport uh, athletic wraps around the ankles and leg braces specifically designed for me. That, uh, medical braces that I should be wearing during these performances and doing these superhuman beats. And uh, I had my weight behind me and not on my toes, landed on my heels and uh, broke both of them at the same time. Happened on the fifth song. Uh, so I walked back around the stage and got some help uh, getting back up to my riser. They put a chair behind me so that whenever the lights went out, I could sit down. Whenever the lights would come on, I'd stand back up and I'd finish the show on my feet. I want the kids to see, you know, that I had been uh, damageable. <laughs> and there you hear Sid talking about breaking both heels live on stage in the fifth song of a Slipknot show and then finished the performance on his feet standing because he didn't let any of the maggots know that he had injured himself. But in very Slipknot fashion, after that show, he started being in a uh, he started using a wheelchair for the shows remaining to that. And in very Slipknot fashion, Corey Taylor was very quick to make fun of him. What is this? We're out here, right here on the fucking East Coast, which is one of my favorite fucking places to tour ever. I'm sure there are a few of you who have been to a couple of these Mayhem Festival fucking shows, man. Make some noise. How many of you, this is your first fucking Mayhem Festival show, man? Well, if you've been keeping track, Joey is not the only injury we've had. That's fucking Slipknot, though, Jesus Christ. I'd like you all to say hi to Mr. Sid fucking Wilson back here. There you hear Corey Taylor calling out Sid for breaking his feet on stage and getting all the maggots to uh, kind of just laugh along with him. That's all you can really do at that point. But that's going to wrap up chapter zero, and now we'll kick it in to chapter number one.
Welcome to chapter one of the Not Umentary. This one's gonna cover the right before era of the self-titled dropping. It's gonna cover from 97, 98, and kind of into 99 a little bit. It's also gonna talk about the greatest drummer in history, in my opinion, Mr. Joey Jordison, as the uh, chapter titles will also correspond to the Slipknot member numbers. And what you heard for the intro and what you're still kind of hearing lightly is tracks from Crows, which was a long-rumored album from Slipknot. Before Internet Days, it was kind of one of those just word-of-mouth things. And nobody had kind of any official statement on it or anything like that. But what Slipknot Crows was, it's a demo that has both Anders and Corey on it. It was going to be an independent, independently released album as well if the, if the band didn't catch a deal, which they ended up, of course, catching a deal with Roadrunner Records. So Crows got put on the shelf, and they reworked a lot of these songs, as you can tell, in the songs that you would hear on the 99 album and going further. And it was, it was I mean, you could really hear that this album had taken another step up from what you heard from Mate Feed, Kill Repeat. But once they got the deal, some of these songs got reworked, like I said, for the self-titled major label debut. It's rumored Clown owns the only master copy of Crows, which has never been released in any official manner. You can find it bootlegged out and anywhere you find bootlegs at. It's up on YouTube or anywhere like that. But it's it's a great album. You could really you could really start to tell what Slipknot was going to be, what Slipknot was going to sound like, and you could hear in that opening track that I played right there. It was pretty reminiscent of what we were going to come to know as Slipknot, but what we'll actually do right now is hear Anders' story on Crows. Crows was an inside joke that we kind of developed when uh, Paul and I drove down a street that he lived on back, it was like in November, and uh, it was at night and we turned down his street and it was just completely covered with blackbirds, crows or whatever they were, they were just everywhere, it was that time of year. It was really, really creepy it, because it felt like you, if you drive down that street, then all these birds are going to fly up and engulf you because, well, we have pretty active imaginations. Um, of course, they just flew away, but we told everybody else about it, and Joey starts going, crows, and then they start writing crows on everything, and it's just an inside joke, and then next thing you know, um, people are calling... <laughs> a group of songs that we did for Roadrunner, uh, Crows, which that was, I think, a fan creation. We didn't call it anything. It was simply um, a group of songs that we, we had sent to Roadrunner to shop, and it wasn't intended to be sold. It wasn't grouped as anything. They weren't necessarily all sent together. Um, they were sent as they were completed, but those groups of songs people just called crows which is fine they were the nether nether world area between mayfield kill repeat and their studio release the roadrunner release so and there you hear anders talking about crows and the story about it and like i said it was it was lore for a very long time kind of one of those things that the internet kind of killed the coolness about once you could actually go into the internet and find people like anders and other people in the know about it you start to figure it out a little bit it was one of those things whenever the internet wasn't around, it was one of those mythology things, almost like Bigfoot. Like, does it actually exist? Is Clown sitting on sitting on an album of Slipknot pre-Slipknot self-titled? All answers will be found, and they were found out about Crows, at least as much as they will let us find out about the answers from Crows. 
what we'll do now is move it on into chapter one, as of course it's going to be about Joey Jordison in the 1997 through 99 era before self-title came out. We're going to hear Joey and Clown talking about the beginnings of the band. We're here with Slipknot for Grinder Magazine in Chile. Shades. Okay, and I'm Jen, cast assistant, questioning Slipknot. Uh, first of all, we noticed in your bio so that you went through some lineup changes in the early days. Um, how long did it take you to settle on the current lineup and who initially started the band? Sean and the bass player Paul initially started the band. I came and checked them out. When I, they initially accepted me to the band, um, I had some ideas that I brought into the people I wanted to uh, add. Just recently, like a few months ago, we just replaced another guitar player. So it's been such an evolution on creating this monster that we've had that it's taken a long time to actually, you know, get everyone set in stone because there's nine guys. The fact is, is that, um, you know, some people, even though they're our bros, didn't want to deal with the touring. Since we've all known each other like 10 years prior to even starting the band, it was real, it's been really easy to pick who we wanted in the band and whatnot. It's been really easy. We've never had any problems. Okay. And who came up with the name and what does it mean? Uh, name of the band, um, I came up with the n- name for the band, and basically we don't look at Slipknot as, the, you know, what a definition of one is. We look at it as that's what our music is, that's the moniker that we have. I mean, it's a, it's a short word, it's easy, it sounds cool, it's two symb- syllables, we got a logo that's pretty defined. All we want it to be is like whatever you take out of it, we want to have a moniker that's really easy for people to remember, so when they hear the band and they see them, and they, when they see the band and they hear the music, that's easily recognizable as one thing in Slipknot. And there you hear Joey talking about the beginnings of Slipknot, the very early stages once he joined along. Once uh, Sean and Paul had begun the band, Joey ended up joining as well to make the, uh, the unholy trinity, I guess you would call. Came up with the Slipknot name himself as they were working with kind of like a working title for a band name throughout until, until they came up with Slipknot, which you can't really... Can't name Slipknot much better than Slipknot, in my opinion. What we'll do now is, like I said, the Crows album that they were sending around to record labels that started to get attention and Roadrunner La- uh, Roadrunner Records had picked them up, signed them to a record deal and they began to record the debut album. Here's Joey talking about it. When you were recording that record, did you know you were on something big? Are you talking about Maybe You Kill Repeat or the no, first No, I'm talking about the song. Oh, yeah. Yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. That's what I thought. Um, yeah, the first song we tracked for that was um, Me Inside. Right. Was that, that was the first one we gave a shot because we didn't want to start out with, you know, sick y- yet yeah. because like okay we got to make sure we know what we're doing and uh, you know we tracked that and the fire was just so insane that uh, I was like oh we didn't even know we were recording mm. that's pretty much how it was I mean the the electricity in the place was so massive that I was, it's just funny because I was watching a videotape of us tracking the first record, which we probably will release on a DVD. Amazing. Oh, yeah, the actual, we'll just call it the Indigo Sessions or something. Yeah. Who knows, down the road. But I was watching, I'm like, this has to be on a DVD for the yeah, fans. Yeah. And we are f- insane on this thing. <laughs> insane. Like, it's like the headphones are on, but all the, the guitar players' headphones are off. They're just, they're just listen, listening to me. They, they headbang their yeah. off. I mean, they're not even <laughs> concentrating on their part at all. It's not even like a normal recording, like everyone sit down and concentrate on your part. It was like, f*** all that. We just play like it was a show. We're all f***ing headbanging. They had to, we had to tie like, we couldn't just tie like normal, like a t-shirt band. We had to get like industrial strength, like sweatbands that were like this small to cover our heads. Wow. To keep the f***ing headphones from falling off. And like, I can uh, imagine throwing it was off. F- 
awesome. Throw Ross Robinson into that mix. He was as right well. next to me, Who's... this close. My hi hat's here, and here's <laughs> Ross right here. Nonstop, and he was just, oh God, he's so good to record with. And like he was just like he's in the band. He was in the room, you know, throwing <laughs> at us. He's like picking up my sticks and playing along. <laughs> like no. during, yeah. <laughs> like, during, during, yeah, during my take, I'm like, awesome, you know, he's <laughs> playing the sticks, throwing <laughs> all over the place, yelling in my ear, you know, and uh, God, man, that was just the most intense recording session. And the thing is, I'd love to try it like that again, and maybe we will. Mm. But I tell you, like, the memory of recording that first record, man, it's like, it's so special, and it, it will never be able to be recreated because it was just that time. Yeah, no one knew who we were. Well. No one knew who we were, and we had this thing that we knew was so special and such in its infancy. It was just... Well, it's, it's so rare it's to just hear... Just so awesome. It's so rare to hear a band that, that were, like, putting their first record out on a global scale. Um, the way you guys spoke at that particular time as well yeah. suggest, suggested that it was... Everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, well, f everyone, f everything, and yeah. like there was a there was They're a real surfacing lyrics. There was a real we're better than than what's around right now. Was yeah. that was that, was that the feeling? We really we did not give a f about anyone else but us. And there you hear Joey talking about the recording of the classic self-titled 1999 release, and what we'll do now is hear about the band in 1999. Decide to sort of push the envelope of heavy metal the way you do, with the size of your band and the type of instruments you play and the look of the band. The people we are, we can't help but be the best, you know what I'm saying? We will never be second best because in our hearts, we can't let ourselves be that. We are nine overachievers. We are nine guys that will go the extra distance to see what we do. Like Joey was saying, every day, every minute of the day, we're constantly working on the band, you know? We take care of ourselves so we can be the best band. We act, we, we just, we're living our dream, you know? I mean, as, as much power as you put into this band, you can't help but come out like 10,000 volts of electricity. I mean, it's, 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 it's hard to explain. Another thing is like, with, I guess, musically speaking, I mean, I know all of us, uh, or me, and uh, as well as all the rest of us. I mean, we have our favorite bands and stuff that I guess has posed influence early on. But the fact is, we wouldn't have got to this point if we didn't create something fresh, new, and innovative. You know, and the only reason to do that is kind of from the confines of where we were and like the exposure that we were receiving, which was zero, to make us do this. I mean, we're like, and it just clicks in you. I mean, you, you there's like just like a serial killer or or like a, a person that is this like. You know, you hear about those, uh, those postal workers and shit that had enough, you know? And it's like they just snap, and it's like, finally, it's like, this is what we got to do. I mean, because, I mean, everyone kind of has, like, the preconce preconceived things, like, in their brain of, like, you know, what it would be like to do this someday, but it's usually, like, a dream, and you don't really act on it. Well, we acted on it, and, and we, we worked so hard to do it, and to push the envelope, I mean, is the only way that for this band to work, because, I mean, when you see a band like this, the, the biggest letdown would be the music sucking. And there you hear the band in 1999 talking about their energy and just their drive to be Slipknot and that amazing emotion and heart and integrity that they put into that first album really won them over worldwide fans. And those worldwide maggots have continued for 20 years now as they continue to love everything about Slipknot. And just to back that up, of course, Joey left the band before the recording of the Grey Chapter album as 
there's a lot of controversy behind that. My, the only piece I'll say is Joey Jordison is now able to play. He came down. He came down with a health issue that prevented him from being able to play. All I'll say is now Joey is able to play. If Joey's able to play, Joey should be in Slipknot. That's just my opinion. He's one of the original three. He's the best drummer in the world, in my opinion. Hopefully, someday we'll see Joey back out there with Slipknot. But even though he left Slipknot, he continues to get praise. The Slipknot fans and metal fans and music fans all hold Joey Jordanson and his drumming in very high regard. Seen as such, he was announced as the Golden God Awards winner in 2016 for drumming. We're going to listen to that right now. So cool to hear 
for the fans to let Joey know, man, we still love you just as much as we did as when you were in Slipknot, man. You're still a part of Slipknot. You're still one of the reasons why all this greatness was brought to us. It's just really cool for Joey to hear five, six years after being in Slipknot that, hey, we, we still love you. We still respect everything you do. I'm glad everybody's still supporting him as they always should. He is the fucking man. But that'll wrap up chapter one of Notumentary. We'll get in to chapter two right now. Welcome to chapter two of the Not Umentary. As we've already talked about, zero and one. We'll move it on to two now, which is, of course, the late, great Paul Gray. As this timeline is also lining up as when Slipknot had really started to infect the world with worldwide sickness. As the self-title had really started to take effects, they were starting to go out and tour on it a little bit, starting to make a name as Slipknot. And what you heard there is a uh, kind of disputed, a disputed lyric, or I guess a uh, more than a lyric, it's more it's more of a sample added into the song as uh, it's added in. And I've heard a lot of people at the beginning of Sick either say "Here comes the pain" or "Pick up the pace." And I actually did some research and found where that sound clip come from to finally say it is officially "Here comes the pain." It comes from the movie Carlito's Way. Well, you ain't coming in. Officially, here comes the pain from Carlito's way. The uh, sample from the song "Sick" as it's been disputed for almost 20 years. I've heard both versions said repeatedly, so figured I should go ahead and find that sound clip and try to make it as official as I could. Like I said, this is when the self-titled tour cycle had begun. Slipknot was really starting to make a name for themselves, and I do believe it all began at Ozfest '99. And what I have is the May 27th OzFest performance from Slipknot. Check it out.
there you hear Slipknot from OzFest 99. I really do believe that's the thing that put Slipknot, their mark on the map worldwide. As there was just, like I said, in this era, there wasn't, internet was really, if you had internet, you probably had a doctor in the family or something like that to be able to afford it. And it also ran super slow. So, I mean, it wasn't really where you could just put a video up on YouTube. I don't think YouTube was around or even thought of in 1999 or anything even like YouTube remotely to where you could watch videos and see how awesome this band is live. And as all these metalheads are going to OzFest, they have no idea who Slipknot is. They're on the, uh, they're on the second stage. They're, they're most, more than likely in the beginning opening early in the day. And you just see the, the name Slipknot on the uh, roster for the OzFest you're going to. You show up and this fucking happens. Imagine, imagine never seeing or hearing Slipknot and going to a show, and this is the first thing you, the first impression you have of Slipknot. That's pretty fucking gnarly. I think that's also why Slipknot really started to make a name for themselves in 1999. Made such a name for themselves that, funny enough, OzFest creator and pretty much creator of metal along with Lemmy Killmister from Motorhead Ozzy wanted to join Slipknot Taylor was asked why he says God bless Ozzy Osbourne because if it weren't for him none of us would be doing this man you know he set the standard and all we do is try to live up to it Taylor's favorite Ozzy moment is when Osbourne told him during an Ozfest that he wanted to be in Slipknot the first thing that Ozzy ever said to me, man, and this was an insane, and it came out of nowhere, was I, I was sitting in a catering with with uh, Sharon and Jack and like all the kids and everything, and we were sitting there, and Ozzy came out, and I was just like, oh my god, and he goes, he goes, he goes, Slipknot, oh, I want to be number ten, and I went, oh, oh, you, anytime you want. That that right there set the tone. He gave me a huge hug, and I was like, wow, you know, I mean. It's just one of those things that makes you fortunate to, to meet the people that you looked up to and have every expectation be exactly what it was. And there you hear Corey Taylor talking about Ozzy wanting to be number 10. How about that? Ozzy number 10 in Slipknot. That would have been pretty interesting to say the least. As I was saying, it was really this 1999 OzFest that set them off. They also toured with Co-Chamber after the OzFest on more of a traditional tour. It wasn't all nice and friendly put together with uh, with a lot of money like OzFest was. Of course, OzFest is a huge super tour. They went out on the road with Co-Chamber after that, and here's Corey talking about that. I mean, we, we might as well have been a meteor, you know, just just, I mean, just ravaging the planet at the time. I mean, we were so ready to just destroy everyone's expectations mm. and just set fire to everything and just reset everything, you know? I mean, if we could have, if we could have been a, a, an EMP and just destroyed all technology, we would have done it, you know? I mean, it was, it was that insane. The intensity of the shows, was that something that was off stage as well? Because the, the shows were just like, you mentioned the Astoria on something yeah. that we previously done. Like, it was, like yeah. was, was it like that off stage as well? Was there, was there that level of like, just intensity is the only word that I can think yeah. of that even gets close to it's, describing. It's crazy. Like it, it's, I mean, we're backstage, like, I mean, huffing the crow. Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, we didn't wash anything. You know, I mean, we didn't wash anything, wow. you know, so. Do you mind explaining huffing, the, I know what you mean by huffing the crow, but do you mind explaining for people who might not understand those three words? It's a clown. <laughs> oh, he's, yeah. 
it's essentially what it is. I mean, we had a crow in a jar, and we would we brought it with us, and we would huff it before the shows, and it would make us throw up on each other. Um, and then Sid and Clown would flip for a punch in the face, or me and Clown would flip for a punch in the face. You know, this is after imbibing, by the way, ten Red Bulls in a row, because we're idiots. I mean, you got to understand. I mean, we were bad waking up. Yeah. But then by the time we got on stage, I mean, we were just ready to eat the world's face. You know. And that's exactly what they did every time they got on stage in that era and every era since, in my opinion. Just seen them in October 2016. They still destroy the stage and anyone watching in the crowd. As they really started to garner, as I said, is more and more. The more sickness that they brought around the world, the more and more maggots were starting to be deployed. And they ended up on Conan O'Brien in early 2000. And funny enough, they now have a member in the band who kind of has a connection to that of course the uh, Conan drummer is Mr. Max Weinberg and son Jay Weinberg is now the drummer of Slipknot they made their debut on the Conan O'Brien show in 2000 let's hear that everybody my next guest began playing together five years ago in their native Des Moines Iowa today they are one of the hottest bands in the country please welcome Slipknot debut performance on Conan O'Brien in 2000 performing Wait and Bleed as they were really starting to starting to put their foot down as a mainstay metal act they were starting to really get a lot a lot of acknowledgement and just to back that up they're on national TV on a very popular talk show Conan O'Brien in 2000 and that'll wrap up the talk from that era of Slipknot as we'll get it into the as it's chapter two we'll talk about the one the only Mr. Paul Gray I really do think Paul Gray is the reason that Slipknot made it if you hear any of the other members of Slipknot talk about Paul he was the one that loved the band more than anybody he was always so positive you know Slipknot they're they're on the verge of self-destruction especially in the early days at all time and I think Paul was really the glue that kept all those guys together and 
whenever you heard Slipknot talk about Paul, that was the memory they they held dearest of him. Is that he was the he was the brother in Slipknot that just loved it so much. He always was so positive. Always had showed mad love to his brothers. And just to back that up, I've got an interview with Paul Gray where he's talking about Slipknot. Yeah, I was born and raised in LA, and and I love Los Angeles. I re- I really do. But I met the greatest people out here. I have the, some of the best friends in the world out here. So. Yeah, I, I'd never move, I don't think, from here. My family's here, too. You know, my brother, my nieces, my mom, and uh, my, my stepdad. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it, I mean, this, 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 this town actually saved my family, in a way. Saved my family's, my family's life, in a way, and, and mine. So, you know, it really, it really has. So I owe this, this city and state. So I'm not leaving. I love her. I love my wife. Yeah, I had a fucking crazy childhood. Crazy, crazy growing up, you know? I mean, a pretty, pretty fucked up childhood. I've been kind of like living on my own since I was 14, doing my own thing and everything. Um, you know, living with friends, homeless. Uh, had my first actual apartment when I was almost 17, like 16 and nine months. I grew up a poor fucking, you know, had, we had no money, living in shitty fucking roach infested, you know, apartments my whole fucking life, you know? So, uh, you know, the little bit of money she had was enough to, for a down payment on a house out here. Right. You know what I mean? And it was like our first actual house. And I got out here and uh, met some people. I didn't know anybody for about six months actually. I was down in a music store and uh, met our original singer for Slipknot. Um, down there, he was needing, they were talking about needing a bass player for a band, and I never played bass in my life, but I was like, I don't know anybody, so fuck it, I can play a bass. I'm like, here, yeah. I know every, I know how to play. I never even touched a fucking bass, really? but yeah, I never played bass before in my life. <laughs> It's clown. I mean, have you ever have you ever seen a show? I mean, come on, it's clown. You know, I mean, dude, he, he was one of the founding members of the band. I mean, his energy, his his whole his, his live show, his his dude, he's just a fucking talented, fucking awesome individual. You know, and and he brings. I mean, sometimes he brings fucking you know shit make people pissed off or whatever. You know, and are happy as fuck. I don't know. You know, it's it's all kinds of different things. You know, I mean, like, he's he's just a clown, man. And it's uh, you know, without him, there would be no Slipknot. Let's roll intro. You don't need love. Roll intro. Baddest motherfucker in the world. Don't intro. Joey's fucking the best drummer in the fucking world, hands down, and fucking my best friend. You know, so there you go. <laughs> But does Corey bring the band? I mean, he brings some of the fucking, you know, the fucking best vocals I've ever heard and fucking best, some of the best lyrics I've ever fucking read and, you know, just one of the greatest fucking human beings I've ever met, you know?
I'm fucking coolest dude, sweetest dude I know. You know, I mean, amazing guitar player. Dude can fucking shred. Me and him both have a little OCD complex, so we get along really well on that. We used to have to share rooms back, you know, back in the day when we, we were all like, you know, packed in and whatever. And it was always like me and Jim together because fucking that, that room would be spotless and fucking nice and organized. So yeah, Jim's awesome. I love Jim. Mick's awesome too, he's a fucking great guitar player. Fucking, and he's also, you know, I mean, I've known Mick for, for fuck, you know, longer than some of the guys in the band, you know. I've, I've been, you know, in other bands with Mick, so, you know, me and Mick have come along, you know, been together for a long time. So, you know, he's like one of my old, like, the old, like one of my oldest bros. <laughs> Fucking, he brings, you know, uh, his, his youth still, you know what I mean? Like, he's still fucking, even though he's, you know, he's getting up there in age with everybody else, like, I mean, his, his fucking weird-ass energy, man, he's got a weird energy, you know, and it's, it's, it's awesome, you know, it's like, a, just the way he thinks about things and stuff. And Sid's, I mean, watching, seeing Sid change over, like, over the years, like, from when he first joined this band to where he is now, and uh, like growing up, kind of, you know, I mean, he joined the band, he was a kid, you know, and uh, how old was he when he? Fuck, I think he was like 20 when he joined the band. 20, yeah, he had to be like 20, and uh, or 21, 21 actually, you know, and uh, but 21, like going on 13, you know what I mean? It was awesome <laughs> to see him actually fucking, you know, fucking just grow up into Sid, man, you know, it's, it's badass. It's really cool. He's a smart guy, too. Sid's a fucking really smart guy. A lot smarter than people give him credit for. Yeah. Craig's my fucking drinking buddy, dude. <laughs> Me and Craig will be at the bar later on tonight, so. <laughs> you know, and that's another thing, you know, it's like, all these guys, I've known them forever because we've all been in bands, you know, like in different, I mean, everybody in this band has been in another band. We've all played together in different bands, you know, different shows, everything like that, so it's like, you know, it's like all these people I've known forever. It's like, I mean, like I said, they're in my family. So Craig, you know, he's, he's like fucking Craig. He's the silent fucking, <laughs> he doesn't talk. He doesn't, whatever, but we get, you know, we know what's up. You know, like I don't have to say a word to Craig, but I know what's up with Craig. Right. And so, you know, he doesn't have to say a word back, you know, or he's just kind of just can sit there and drink our beer and we just know what's going on. Chris's bud, he's hilarious. Chris brings, I think, some the comedy to <laughs> Chris is like, yeah, you know, and Chris, Chris was like the, you know, the, the, I guess kind of like, we put Chris through some hazing in the beginning, you know what I mean? And, and the, the, the way he stuck it out. And then we put Chris through a lot of hazing during the, during touring too, not intentionally, but, uh, you know, he's just, man, he's, he's a great guy. You know, he really is. And, uh, and um, you know, I mean, he brings a he brings a lot of laughter to the band. He like lightens up the fucking whole thing. You know, nine people together constantly. You know, you're gonna get friction. So he, you know, yeah, to break up break the ice sometimes. Yeah, you definitely need that guy. And there you hear Paul Great talking about his bandmates in Slipknot and the love he had for them. And now what we're gonna hear is Corey Taylor talking about a funny story he remembers from the road involving him and Paul. 
story about when you were really good and you took your shit because you and Paul Gray and the fucking. Oh, on the bus? Yes. Yeah. You want to hear the bus shit story? Yes, the fact that you know it, <laughs> why would I tell it again? <laughs> when you've heard it. Okay. Alright, it, it's okay. I'm about to tell you a disgusting story. <laughs> and it's honestly it's one of my favorites and it involves Paul. So yeah. uh, long time ago, 2001, so we're talking 14 years ago. Iowa. I would, yes, it was, can I tell the story, fuckface? <laughs> Don't make me fucking throw you out, Aaron. So, 2001, the Iowa cycle. Thanks for the assist. We were in Europe, and I don't know if anybody knows anything about tour buses. You can't shit. No. And you can't put paper in them. Nope. Everything else is good. Just leaves pee, basically. You can pee on a bus. Everything else goes into that tank, and then the smell never fucking goes away. So, you can't shit on the bus. And I proved that the first day of fucking touring in 1999 by breaking that rule. And they never let me fucking forget it. So, 2001, we are in Europe, we're touring. Paul and I are fucking smashed, fucked up. We had two buses at the time. Everybody else is asleep. He and I are up, we're hanging out, drinking a little whiskey, just having a good fucking time. Yeah. And uh, all of a sudden, just out of nowhere, I start getting that. Chili dogs we had. Oh. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you gotta take a shit, don't you? <laughs> no, no, I'll be alright, I'll be alright. Right. <laughs> I gotta take a shit. <laughs> so what are you gonna do? And Paul, one of the best things and worst things about him, he just loved discomfort in other people, especially in moments like that. So he's just fucking. <laughs> now, I wasn't gonna good laugh. I wasn't gonna destroy the bus. However, over the years, we have found out a way of getting around that which is the hot bag. It's exactly what you think it is. It's bad. But it's only bad for a second until you get it the fuck out. Right? Because we were in the middle of nowhere. There was no stopping in a fucking bathroom. This is Europe, okay? Basically, you might as well be in the fucking Congo at that point. After a certain time, people go to bed. They're like, I'm not selling you shit after 1 a.m., okay? Fuck you, you gotta take a shit, go in the woods. What do you think you are, glamping? So, I'm like, dude, I'm gonna have to fucking hunt that one, man. Paul's so stoked. Yeah? I don't want to. Maybe I can hold on. 
all right, well, we gotta find a bag. And I'm like, why are you so fucking happy? Because it's awesome. So we're looking around this fucking European fucking bus, and all we can find is a giant, and I mean fucking giant, industrial-sized garbage bag. There's no goddamn way this thing is fitting in the toilet, because basically you have to fucking line it like a trash can. It's the only way this is effective. You fucking stick it down in it, and then put the seat down. Oh, come on. I'm not trying to sell this as a home game here. I'm drunk as shit. I'm like, oh god, this is gonna fucking suck. <laughs> and it is just pouring out of the sides like you put too much cheese on a grilled cheese sandwich. It's just, it's not poop yet. It's just the bag so far. We haven't got there. So Paul, being my friend, he's like, I'll watch the door, dude. It's gonna be fine. It's gonna be fine. So I, you promise? Yeah, yeah, it's just gonna be great. No lock. So we fully, hopefully, fully fucking loaded. We're standing there and we're screaming down the fucking freeway. And I'm like, well, what if I just fucking open the door, throw the bag out, shut that fucker as quickly as possible? This is all fucking whiskey talk, basically. And Paul's like, that's genius. It's good, right? Something go wrong. He's got the button. I've got my bag of dick. <laughs> now, mind you, we are part of a fucking caravan. It's yeah. <laughs> not exactly fucking top of the list in my brain at that moment. That doesn't matter. It's going to be fine. <laughs> We're getting rid of this son of a bitch. 
story circa 2001 from Corey taylor pretty funny story to wrap up chapter two but before we get out of here i wanted to play some sound as the golden gods once again revolver golden gods decided to uh honor paul by naming their best bass player award after him we're gonna listen to that right now from 2013 here to honor their bandmate and brother paul gray Give it up for the boys in Slipknot. This award was created last year and Revolver named it in honor of our friend, our brother, our bass player, Paul Gray. 
We love you, Paul. We think about Paul every day, and this award celebrates the impact he had on everyone who knew him. The nominees for the uh, Paul Gray Best Bass Award presented by Dean Markley are... Rex Brown of Kill Devil Hill. Steve Harris of Iron Maiden. Let me fucking kill my stir. Getty Lee of Rush. Jason Newstead of Newstead. And Sergio Vega of the Deftones. Dean Martin's best basis award goes to. <laughs> Let me fucking kill my star! That's pretty fucking cool right there. I bet if you told 13-year-old Paul Gray that one day Lemmy Kilmister was going to win an award named after him, he would be pretty fucking stoked about that. So that's going to wrap up Chapter 2 of Notumentary right here on the Homer's Radio Network. Chapter 3 of the Knot. You mentry right here in the Homer's Radio Network, exclusive to homersradio.com. You can also find it anywhere you listen to podcasts at. Just search HRN or Homer's Radio, either one, and the Knot Umentary will be there for you. But the easiest way to find it is simply to go to homersradio.com and download it directly right there from the source. Like I said, it's Chapter 3. Going to be getting into, if you couldn't tell from the intro, the Iowa era, arguably the... Uh, best album one of the most favorite albums by all the maggots for sure one of the probably the top two whenever whenever polled of what's your favorite album you're probably going to get self-titled or iowa as the two replies most often it's because in 2001 of course after two years of touring off the self-titled album and because of bad management bad management not getting paid very much for doing that excruciating touring that they were doing whenever they were fighting for everything that they could find in the early days before they were able to make any money or anything like that and come to find out bad management had left them to where after the 99 tour cycle and the 2000 tour cycle off the self-titled they didn't have a lot of money going into the Iowa recordings so you could definitely hear their anger on Iowa you could definitely tell that they were telling the industry fuck you the industry was telling them to make more weight and bleeds you needed more melodic music and Iowa was anything but melodic if, I'm sure if you're listening to this, you've heard Iowa several times, and it was the opposite of what all the insiders was telling them they should do, and it was the perfect move for Slipknot. It was what all the maggots wanted to hear. The most vile album to date, probably. Just the stories of them recording this album is absolutely crazy, but like when all the chapters, since this is chapter three, it'll also correspond with the member number, and it, that member number, of course, is Mr. Chris Fame, percussionist, and also does some awesome-ass uh, background vocals. What we're going to hear about right now is whenever he got his start in the band. It was a rough time for me because they didn't 
they wouldn't let me record. Like halfway through the record, they just wouldn't let me record on any of the songs. And um, you because know, you were new or something. Yeah, yeah, and just you know, they just weren't going to hand this to me. You know. So you had so, to earn your your place. Yeah, absolutely. How? Yeah, it was difficult. Um, it's to understand Slipknot back then is really difficult because it's such it's like such mental abuse, you know, um, <clears throat> just never getting any love from the guys at all, you know. It was just a, a really hard time, but I I really really love music, man. So I think that that's kind of what drove me, you know, just knowing that that song spit it out. Like I just knew that it was special, man, you know, and and I knew and I believed in that song. And because um, the guys just, you know, I was like once in a while, like I'd be driving. I was remember driving with Paul and I was like, so am I going to be number three? You know, because obviously, you know, like everybody else is, has a number except for three. Yeah. And he's like, I don't know, man. You know, you're, you're not getting a number yet, you know, and just shit like that. You know, that constantly was like, I was like, God, man, these guys just fucking hate me. You know, so. And. um yeah, I mean, it's just crazy. When when was the turning point? <sighs> Probably, <laughs> for me personally, maybe a month ago. <laughs> a month ago? Why yeah, I mean, I just don't know, man. It's, it's just, I'm just really hard on myself. And um, so I never, I always thought that it was going to end, you know? But, um... I finally just have come to a term of my life, time of my life where I'm number three, man, you know, and nobody else can do what I do, you know. If somebody else was to try and get up there and imitate it, it wouldn't be the same. Well, you were saying they were really hard on you. Were they also hard on each other or were they eight against you or what was it? Um, they were, yeah, they were hard on each other too. and. Um, it was, uh, yeah, because but they were together, you know? Yeah, but Jim also uh, joined later, I think. Yeah, yeah, but um, I think at that time it was, it was time to go, you know, it was time to, you know, we were getting close to having to go on Ozfest, so I don't think it was just, and maybe it's a guitar player thing too, you know, like, I don't know, but. Oh, you mean maybe guitars are more important or something? Right, you know, it's a big part of it, you know. The percussion sometimes, it used to feel like it was just a side thing, you know what I mean? So maybe you couldn't, they couldn't interrupt his mentality as far as, but, you know, that's, Jim would have to tell, explain that to okay. you. I mean, I don't know, but I, I just felt in my own, on my own that, it was always going to end, you know, when the, and I, now we laugh about it. They're like, oh my God, dude, like, well, why you, were you thinking that yeah. the whole time, you know, like you're Chris, you know, we're family and blah, blah, blah. But I don't know, it's kind of, you know, I have a lot to, uh, like Jason Neunstead, you know, like when I watched that film, I, I relate a lot to like how he felt, uh, you know, about being like the new person. Yeah. So it's difficult, man, but. Um, now, now? Now I'm I'm part of the family, man. You know. And and how does it feel? Uh, great. Feels really good, man. Yeah. Like I could, like I actually like. 
have opinions now that I can that I bring out. Like, hey man, I think we should put this song in the set. You know, when before I was scared to say anything about anything about this band. And there you hear Chris Fain's experience when he was pretty much getting hazed whenever he first joined Slipknot as the band was already well established and going by the time he joined up. I think he pretty much came in whenever Anders quit the band once Corey was brought in to do more of the vocals. They needed another guy for vocals. Like I said, he's got some awesome backup vocals. I believe that's why he was brought in. So he's brought in pretty late on the process, so they're going to make sure he had to earn everything. And from the sounds of that, it sounded like he definitely did. But like I said, this episode's about Iowa. What better person than the Chapter 3 Chris to talk about Iowa. The Iowa record and the Iowa cycle, you need to know what happened on the first record and the first record cycle just to have a, a reference point on what we went through. Um, the record cycle f for the first record was horrifying. Um, new band, trying to make it. Um, just imagine yourself and eight other people being shoved into one tour bus, taken all over the world, literally drug all over the world, with no money, no cell phone, no computers, fighting just to stay alive, um, hiding whatever alcohol you could find in your bunk to make sure that you got some, you know, when, when the whole band on the rider gets one 12-pack of beer for nine guys. It was war. It was war with food. It was war with everything. And the shows were war, especially. You couldn't s sit, sit around. Um, you couldn't, you didn't want to be that guy. You had to go as hard as you could all the time. And the music made it a lot easier to do that. Obviously, there were certain times, though, when, when we were sick, hungry, tired, didn't want to play. But we always did, and we always did it absolutely as hard as possible. And then you get start getting noticed. And then the le record label starts coming around, seeing the shows. And at this point, at least for myself, I didn't, I didn't know if we were a big band, if we were you know, just a flash in the pan. And all of a sudden, some more attention and more little cool things started to happen in our lives and getting to go to places that we never would be able to get to go before. Um, meeting certain people, you're like, whoa, that person wants to see our band. That's, you know, that's pretty crazy. And um, there was this, and this builds up to this record label kid in Europe. I guarantee he's not working for the industry anymore. Um, he came up to me and he's like, man, if all we got to do for this next record is write three weight and bleeds, and you know everything's going to be great, you know. And I was just like, what? Like this is what. This is what's coming at us the whole time too. Now the money and everything's starting to come in and people are like, wow, this, this band is really gonna do it. So we better hurry up and get, get the cash out of them. And there you hear Chris Fain talking about what they were thinking whenever they were recording Iowa. And like I said, people were t trying to tell them what was best for them. They knew what was best for them. And the intensity came through on that album for sure. And when you talk about intensity, there's no one more intense than Clown. We're around because we speak the truth. If we speak the truth, it must be with what's going on around us today. You know what I'm saying? And people are grabbing a hold of that. Um, that's never going to stop, but it's just going to its going to take over to a new plateau. You know what I'm saying? It's going to get a little more underground. It's going to get a little more diverse and bigger. You know what I mean? And we're going to cut all this out. 
I personally am going to start making people as yourself, you know, responsible for what you're doing. Because you've asked me to be responsible, you know. And see, I live in my own imagination, so you're only here because I choose you to be here. You know what I'm saying? You wouldn't have to be here if I didn't want you to be here. I wouldn't have to be here if I didn't. This didn't even have to happen. But I wanted it to, so you're here. So now that you're here and I've chose you to be here and you're documenting this, I'm just going to make sure I get a copy and I already know what you look like and I can get your email address and I'll just put your face up on my website and I'll explain to the maggots that you're the one responsible for this and I'll make sure they can get a copy. Hell, man, I can even tell them how to go to the phone book and get your address. You know, I don't care anymore. Went with it. You know, we kind of let everybody look and feel and try to understand it. Usually, it usually worked out that people saw us and they didn't understand it. Then they heard us and they really didn't understand it. But then they came out and watched the show and then they were like, oh, I get it all. You know what I mean? So we kind of took that approach. Just shut up, shut up, shut up. Don't talk about, you know, what it is and, you know, just let it happen. But through that, a lot of you, you know what I mean? A lot of press, a lot of TV and all that stuff have just kind of, you know, perverted it, manipulated it, made it boring. The bottom line is you still get up and go to work and you could be in a bad mood and I might not get all your attention. I'm tired of that. If you're going to talk about me, I want all your attention. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I don't want a bad day no. when you're writing the words. I want you to do your job, you know what I mean? And write it down the way it was said. In your opinion, maybe I'm an asshole. Maybe I'm an egotistical Maybe Maybe I'm a genius. Maybe I'm Jesus. I don't know. I'm saying... I just want you to be honest. I want you to communicate with me. You know what I mean? And I just want to tell the truth. And, and, and they haven't been telling the truth. You know, that they're clever. They're in between so much that they think they're painting pictures in words. You know, saying what they need to to keep it going, you know? Make me feel like a cartoon and make me feel like some animated superhero. You know, that, those things... Those things are, 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 is work for me. I, I like it that everybody does that to us because it makes me grow. It makes me work, makes me cut through it. Um, what I don't like is, you know, I don't like, I don't like references of, uh, I don't like people taking um, their opinions too far by stating what they know we are, you know, as of, uh, you know, Satanistic stuff, you know. Um, there's not one member in the band that is a practicing Satanist and nor would be and it just is what it is and I'm tired of it and uh, if you can't come at Slipknot intellectually and read the words and download the information and go to fan sites and see all the potential I'll give you an example my wife got sick <clears throat> and we had to cancel a, like a 30-day tour that we we're gonna do before coming here and making up this postponement and we had to cancel that tour because uh, my wife got sick. She had Crohn's and we had to have surgery. And, you know, it, everything turned out great. Well, the, the bottom line is, you know, everybody judges us. You know, they judge the hate thing. They, ju they judge all of it, you know, and they think they know. So they just quickly, quickly answer what they know they know about us. And it gets out there and people are listening. A lot of people are ignorant. They don't take the time, like I was explaining to you. We need days, weeks to understand each other. <clears throat> I had so many maggots and so many people in the industry ask me how my wife was. Still, every day someone asks me. 
someone that I've made a relationship with at the record label in France, someone that I've met in Amsterdam two years ago when I played there for the first time. Sean, how's your wife? If that isn't, if that isn't something, if that isn't pure positive potential created through Slipknot, for me, you know, I can't speak for everybody, but you know, I looked at that, and I never set out to be in a band that cared that we were connecting with all 10,000 people. I'll be honest, if one thought process leaves getting it, and I helped, then I did everything I could do. And there you hear Clown talking about the misconceptions all the way back in 2001, and just to back that up, literally on a podcast that I listened to where they review a, a band's discography, they were talking about Slipknot, and it just came out two weeks ago. So we're talking about 17 years since this interview, and they're talking about goats, and they're like, well, you know, Slipknot's like, Slipknot likes to use goats in their videos and in their imagery because because of the Satan uh, sim- symbolic nature behind goats and Satan. And I had to, I had to comment quickly, well, uh, Actually, Slipknot uses the goat because you're either go- you're either a goat or you're sheep. It has nothing to do with Satanism or anything like that. So, just like Clown was saying, 17 years ago they were answering questions, and still, and and I mean, this podcast they actually they spent time listening to Slipknot albums. One of the hosts even said that he had bought the first two albums, were uh, was a maggot for the f- initial two albums coming out, and still didn't even know that. So. Like clown, like clown said, they were just fighting misconceptions the entire time, and that'll piss you off just a little bit. And once they put the Iowa record out, of course, 9/11 happened, and I think that really affected the total sales. And of course, the radio and airplay of Iowa, it's you couldn't even show like somebody getting shot on a dramatic TV show, you know, like a fake TV show right after 9/11. If you just remember the mindset back then, so playing something like people equal shit definitely wasn't probably going to get played on the radio or MTV in that era. It was just bad timing for that album to come out. But the greatness of that album, as time went on, more and more people went on to find it. So the people that didn't find it in 2001 have, have found it in the in the preceding 17 years since. And they found out it was a pretty goddamn good album. And after they put the album out, they went on tour. It was called the Pledge of Allegiance Tour. And we got an interview from that. Tour's been great. All our tours are good, though, you know, because uh, we need to do it to live, and they need to see us to live. Definitely the most strenuous, definitely the most painful, but also probably the best and most uh, effective live shows we've ever played. I think at this point in time right now, the kids need this, man. They need somewhere where they can go and feel normal again. They just need some place where they can to get get together as the tribes, you know. We have something that works and what it's called a slipknot and it takes nine severe personalities to make it go off without a hook. It's almost like an attack on the crowd, you know. We go out there and we push ourselves as hard as we can because if it wasn't for those kids, we wouldn't be here. our mask because who cares what I look like? I'm ugly and I know it. I'm fat and I know it. You know what? I rock. We never started this band to get personal gain off the way I look. What I wanted was something that would make me very unconscious of what my face was doing because I wanted everything to come out through the music. We 
we get pigeonholed so much because they think there's so much hate and there's so much rage. But at the same time, there's hope. There's wisdom. There's all these different things, man. There's a lot of sadness. But at the same time, there's a lot of happiness because these are things that made us who we are. We're basically telling kids that it's all right and you can be whoever you want to be and you can do whatever you want to do. I see so many great parents that come to our shows that they sit with their kids they don't really get it, but they see how happy their kids are, man. And there's no danger here. The only danger I represent is the truth. Because I am not going to lie to our kids. Because our kids are a lot smarter than anybody gives them credit for. Most of you aren't even going to understand Slipknot until it's been gone for 10 years. And that's the way we've pretty much designed it. And there you hear an interview from the Pledge of Allegiance tour that took place in 2001. Now I'm going to let you hear Liberate live from the Pledge of Allegiance tour. Wow. 
And there you hear Liberate Live from the Pledge of Allegiance Tour, which kicked off in 2001. That pretty much wraps up the uh, the album making, Iowa hitting, and the tour cycle from that era. Uh, Ten years after the release of Iowa in 2011, Slipknot put out a, a 10th anniversary edition of it and had some interviews talking about the disc and what the album did for them as a band and what it means to them. Let's hear from what Clown thinks now. We heard from him earlier. Let's see what he has after 10 years of perspective to say about the album. Sean, set up the tone. Tell us about Iowa. When we got into that second record, all the frustration of what people were talking about this sophomore record, you know, and the curse of the sophomore record, and hearing people tell us what we needed to do more of, you know, write more weight and bleeds, or or some more melodic things, or that we should do this with our stage show. All that became hate towards people that hated us to begin with. And really, it was a jealousy because it was so beautiful. It was so perfect. And we knew it. And I guess the logistics was in their favor. You know, it just didn't seem like a nine-man band could actually sustain. So when that first record got done and we got into the studio for the second record and, and you know, Paul, Joey, and Jim got right into writing immediately after a rigorous tour cycle all around the world. I mean, I remember thinking we were never going to ever come home. That people around us were going to force us to to more or less um, just take us for every dime that we are, you know, because it was working. So we took it all in, separated ourselves from the world, everyone around us, and just locked ourselves into a thought process that could never be obtained again uh, because of the circumstances to be. And and hate was just it, and the world was changing. You know, at least in the United States, things were going on. And, you know, there was a tragedy that happened in 2001, and we just happened to be out on the road four months before things kind of changed forever around here. And, you know, that's what it was, was all the frustration and the anger of obtaining one's dream. And I can't say it without the other. We, we did get a lot of what we always wanted. I mean, I can't tell you what it's like to be exposed to a culture like, you know, the Japanese people and eat Korean barbecue with people that barely can speak English but start learning it because they want to know, they can hear that tone in your voice on the album, so they dig deep within their souls to start learning English so they know what you're saying. I mean, that's powerful stuff. But coming out of it, now all of a sudden, the, you know, the people that really don't matter, they start having an opinion, and they start adhering themselves to us like parasites. So the only way to do it was to cut ourselves off from ourselves. Um, almost creating it impossible for anything to adhere to ourselves, even including our brothers, our, you know, our, our, our other bandmates. We separated ourselves from each other, but we made sure that we always got together to do this thing. And the thing was going to be called Iowa. He's going to tell us all about his memories of what it was like, what the experience was like making this album. You know, I can remember 
going to the studio, for instance, we decided to go to Sound City because Sound City had one of the most famous drum rooms, you know, in the world. And, you know, it's Studio A. And, and I remember walking in there with Joey and him going, okay, cool, now show me the smallest room. <clears throat> so we go back and there's just this teeny little room that I think was just a glorified vocal booth, if anything. Might have even been a room that you just put guitar amps in to isolate them, you know. And he put his drum set in there, and his drum set pretty much took up the whole room. So here we are renting an expensive, you know, A-plus room for a big room, but utilizing the small room. And I remember the people there saying, I don't understand this band because, you know, the bands come here to use this room, and not only are they not using it, but they put a bar in it. We put a bar in the big room called Smoker's Lounge. And, and I mean, this is where we went. And I, and I can remember those were the good days where you still would record a two-inch tape. And, you know, Ross Robinson would, you know, cut drum fills and tape them on the wall. You know, Joey would do three takes of drums for one song. And then, you know, they might want to use the, you know, the drum build from take three. So they would have it cut up on the ceiling to use. And I can remember we would all show up late at different times in different vehicles with different people. And then we would make those people that we showed up with leave. And we would all take our time to get ready. And if we were supposed to be there at noon, we probably wouldn't get started until two. And we would get together and we would all play live together for Joey to do drum tracks. And the minute we were done, and he was like, okay, I've given everything I have. I believe that I have what I need for this song. And the minute he said that, we were all gone. Just everyone. Whereas the first record, we all were around. We were all taking the experience. We were all giving opinion. We were all, you know, enjoying, what, you know, just telling stories why Ross would cut and, while he was getting exhausted, we were getting exhausted. You know, I was running down the hill and getting people dinner. Or, you know, we were bros. And we were still bros in Iowa, but there was hate. And it was like everyone was left at their own, you know, devices. To shed some light on what was going on in the band during the time of the recording of this album, was there a lot of egos floating around, Sean? There was extreme ego, for sure. I mean, the ego was just completely, completely um, out of control because people start going for themselves. And it's just a natural thing that happens because everyone in the world wanted to know who did it, whose idea was this. And, you know, everybody went for themselves from time to time. You couldn't help it because you'd never experienced anything like that. You never knew that you were going to be asked a question like, so are you the mastermind behind all this, you know? And it's very tempting to say yes. And of course, you know, I can't speak for anyone else, but I know that I did it. You know, I know that I'm guilty for being too much ego. And there was a lot of ego. Um, but I don't think the ego was that bad because we had just gone out and kicked the shit out of the world for 18 months. 
and you know we looked at each other as the best you know i'd watch my drummer play and i'd just be like you're the shit and i think he would watch me be the clown and just go there's no one else like you in the world in rock and roll and i'd look at our guitar players and i'd be like those are the best guitar players in the world and they're in the band that i am in so i think our ego is good but there definitely was a thought process that was not going to be deterred away from and there you hear sean clown cran talking about their mental mind state during the Iowa record, and then some pretty good perspective looking back on it, what he thought his feelings was on their ego and the uh, perceived ego trip that a lot of the band members had or a lot of the band members thought the other band members had. It almost brought Slipknot to an end, but it it also brought Iowa to life. So that was pretty good tension to make art like Iowa out of that kind of tension to where you're almost falling apart. And if you listen to that album, you can tell it's a band. That very well may be their last album, but fortunately it wasn't. But that was the last sound clip of Chapter 3 of this documentary about Iowa. And, of course, number three, Chris Fain himself. That'll wrap this one up, but we're going to quickly get into Chapter 4. <laughs> Welcome to Chapter 4 of Notumentary right here on the Homer's Radio Network. If you missed last chapter for some reason, we left off after the uh, Iowa cycle. The recording was done, the record was released, the videos have been made, the tours have been completed. And now, of course, you got to start looking to the next record as Iowa, Iowa was released in 2001. By 2003, people are already talking about what's going to be the next Slipknot album. What's it going to sound like? And... To start it off, MTV was covering the actual recording of the album. Slipknot is back, masked and crass. You'll get nothing like it! <laughs> Find out what the Knot and Johnny Cash have in common, besides wearing black. Coming up, just when you thought you'd never see their pretty faces again, Slipknot is in the studio. Now that we're back, it's better than it ever has been. We're back like hardcore. Still crazy after all these years. After rumors of breakups and bad blood, it looked like the masked madmen of Slipknot were going to hang out their Halloween gear. But super producer Rick Rubin brought the band back from the brink. And they are now completing their third album in their LA recording headquarters, which sounds a little like the Justice League of America to me, only creepier. Slipknot are back. And as Ian Robinson found out, back with a vengeance. A year and a half ago, Slipknot was coming undone. There was a lot of tension, man. I mean, there was a lot of hurt feelings going on. Being the scariest metal band in the world can be exhausting. And after years of relentless recording and touring, the band members needed a break. The Iowa tour and the Iowa album was so intense and just so uh, dark, right. man. I mean... I remember we, we came off and a lot of us were just like our health was screwed. I gained like 50 pounds, dude, just from sitting in my room eating because I didn't want to move. With a few Slipknot members taking on side projects, fans feared that their favorite mass Midwestern nine piece was no more. The fact is we needed other things to do because there's so many, you know, talented guys in this band. You know, everyone wanted us to go and have a little breathing room on other realms. Now that we're back, it's better than it ever has been. We're back like hardcore. 
And the Knot is back in the studio, recording in a Los Angeles mansion with legendary production guru, Rick Rubin. It's insane what we've been doing since working with Rick. He has the ability to look at an artist who's already established, who's already pretty much known for what they do, and look at it from a different direction and be able to pull that out, you know? It's, it's all about interpretation. So what do the new Rubenized Slipknot recordings sound like? This is going to be like the most eclectic album but, that anybody's yeah. ever heard. We got, you know, mood keyboards, xylophones, timpani drums, stuff that we've never done before. There's more mellow pieces on it, and I don't want to scare anybody with that. I mean, it's dark. It's really a dark record, but I mean, there's, you know, the melodies have been just taken to a realm that we've never done before. Okay, so how about we hear some of it now? You get nothing. Yeah, you gotta wait until the album comes out. You, you know how we work. You'll get nothing and like it! <laughs> if you're not not fans, our intrepid metal reporter Ian Robinson got a taste of the new record and informs us that, and this is a direct quote, it's Slipknot, but it's Slipknot turned up full tilt and with all musical receptors open and charged. I have a feeling we may have a classic in the making. That's your Uncle Ian talking, and around here, his word is gold. And there you hear MTV News special about the recording of the Subliminal Versus Volume 3 as that was underway. And that's really the album that MTV seemed like they picked up on the most. It was, it was kind of the one that I guess they felt like was the most friendly for them to play. And it was a few years, of course, after the 9-11 incident and tragedies that happened. So people were starting to play a little bit more uh, hardcore music and it wasn't so shut off. But MTV definitely jumped on and whenever the album came out, Slipknot was on the headbanger's ball. Welcome back to Headbangers Ball. Joining us now, Slipknot. Welcome to the show, fellas. Long time no see. Slipknot's new album, Volume 3, The Subliminal Verses, will be in stores this Tuesday. Now, you guys um, worked with Rick Rubin on this one, who's obviously he's worked with Slayer, Beastie Boys, a ton of amazing bands. How was it working with him? Did he actually show up? Mm. Yeah. Once in a while. He was there. Yeah. He kicked it on the couch, stroked his beard, nodded, and then he was out, you know. Because <laughs> I heard, I heard Kerry King saying, you know, that yeah. well, he doesn't show up. A lot of people have issues with the way he works, you know, which, you know, it's fine, whatever. But, I mean, he, it's it's the end result that really matters, and I think the album will speak for itself. So, so did he yeah. take you to, like, a new place? And he, we were we were thinking about going there anyway, but I mean, he definitely encouraged us. You know, I mean, on this album, we really wanted to break out of sort of the wall, the the kind of closed-in space we kind of painted for ourselves, and really show everybody in the band, show that there was there was more to this band than, than just what everybody had seen pri previously. So cool. we really got to shine on this man. It's, there's a lot of good stuff on it. All right, so we will find out Tuesday. This Tuesday is coming out. Right now, we got. Your first video, so the the concept video, not the live version of Wait and Bleed. There was some controversy <laughs> with it, or you just didn't like it. We Mick, just, Mick, what, what, was, what was the problem with this video? Uh, it sucked. There you go. <laughs> All right, check it out. Here's Slipknot with Wait and Bleed. More with Slipknot when we come back in a minute, so keep watching Headbangers Ball. Welcome back. Slipknot is here hanging out with me. So let's set the record straight. How uh, close did you guys come to breaking up? I heard rumors. There were some canceled shows. You guys went and did side projects. Was it really it was, bad? I mean, we were just like totally disconnected from each other, man. You know, I mean, I, you know, me and Jim were over here. Joey was over here. Everybody else was kind of, you know, doing their own thing. And 
we just, it just got to the point where we just didn't even want to talk, you know, and it, it was, it was, it was just a lot of darkness around us. So when we, when it came time to, to get back together to do this, it was just really important to, to reconnect, you know, and a lot, a lot of that came with cleaning our house, you know, so to speak, and getting rid of a lot of the poison that was there, and, and just making sure that we had people that were working with us and not against us, which cool. took a long time, you know. We, uh, you know, I mean, the great thing about this band is that, you know, uh, things try to come in and, and separate us and kill us, and we just keep just mowing through it. And it, it definitely made us stronger as a band. It, it really helped us get back together. And, and it and it shows on this album, man. I mean, it's the, and then the last tour was just like the best time we've ever had on the road. We are just hanging out more and just being friends again. Man. Cool. That's, that was what was huge. Cool. Well, we're definitely gonna check out uh, the videos from a bunch of your side projects right now. We're gonna see Joey's band Murder Dolls. Here they are with White Wedding. More videos on the way. More with. Slipknot, stick around. This is Headbangers Ball. Slipknot is still here hanging out with us. Their new CD, Volume 3, The Subliminal Verses, will be in stores this Tuesday. So go and get that. Let's talk about the, uh, the cover of the record. You got yeah. a mask on there. Does it signify anything? Who's That's, the deal with it? Uh, well, Sean has always really had a great eye for the art direction and stuff. And on this one, he created this mask. It was kind of a symbol of, of all our all our kids and all our maggots so it's we, we basically became the, the maggot mask and uh it just uh it just kind of unifies everything kind of brings everybody back you know because we've been gone for a while and uh we just wanted to it's kind of a symbol just to let everybody know that we didn't forget you know and that they're a huge huge reason why we're here so it's kind of a dedication to them so cool so like now that you guys all have different variations of the mask and stuff are you seeing the fans now trying to make new masks, or do people come out with the old ones on? Yeah, it's it's funny, man. I mean, it's like everybody was like, for the first few shows, everybody was coming in the old ones, and they were just, oh, you know, so they run home and like build a new one out of like a, a shopping bag and some glue and some glitter. And it was weird, man. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> yeah. So, but like by the end of the tour, man, people were really starting to, to get into the new the new the new way and. Uh, it really, it really showed, so it's right. cool. Well, let's check out another Slipknot video. Here they are with My Plague. Coming up, we're gonna find out what these guys are planning for this summer's Ozfest, so keep it right here on Headbangers Ball. Welcome back to the Headbangers Ball. Slipknot is still here. You guys are headlining second stage of Ozfest this year. Yes. Now, in the past, and actually on this last tour, you scaled things down. Yeah. Well, in the past, you guys had a ton of different things for the stage show. I saw snow, pyro. Yeah, the, yeah, the huge rock. Yeah, the, the, big, the big rock show. It was, it was cool, you know. But it was, 
we just we've done it, you know. And, and coming back, we were like, you know, we just wiped it with so much, so much of what we were doing that it was like we kind of got lost in the in the visuals, you know. I mean, we were doing so much that the band just kind of faded in the background, you know. Which we've always been the band that's been right up front. So coming back, we were just like, you know what, we're gonna just do it the way we have always done it, the way we made our bones. Just go out there, just us. Strip down. Yeah, instruments, the, the kids, and what Anyth more do you want? Anything uh, special planned for Ozfest? I mean, it's in the day, obviously. There's not much you can do as far as lighting. Slamming. Yeah, lots of, lots of insane music and just watching our kids just tear it up, basically, you know? Yeah. Cool. It's going to be good. That was our you know, main reason why you know, to do the second stage, you know? So, you know, because you know how the office is, it's like, you know. Everybody's up on the lawn. Lives, 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 lives. The lawn. Oh, yeah. So, you know, we Live wanted to bring our lawn in front of us. The guy up front so. with the, the Dixie cup going, you got it pretty good. What's Sabbath? Come on. You know? Yeah. Which, you know, nothing against that. I mean, it, it's, it's you know, the seats up front are, like, really expensive. Yeah, so, but I mean, you want to play to a pit. Exactly. I want to play, you know, I want to play to our kids. So. So, All right, so. well, let's check out a, a video from Clown's band. How is Clown, by the way? I don't know. Nobody talks to him. Okay. Nobody makes eye contact with him. He does. <laughs> Here they are, to my surprise, with In the Mood. Check it out. Yours and your uh, yeah. side project, Stone Sour. We should dedicate this one to Economaki. Yeah. You guys, uh, <laughs> you guys took away, you know, the other Economaki yeah. that I like. Yes. Curvy or what? Yeah. Curvy. But that check was, it out. Yeah. Here they are, Stone Sour. Get inside. Slipknot is still gonna be here when we come back, and you're gonna see that corn world premiere. It's all on the way, keep watching. Headbangers Ball here with Slipknot, about to play their latest video for the song Duality. It's off their brand new CD. It's coming out this Tuesday called Volume 3, The Subliminal Verses. Now, I heard that when you guys shot this video, that uh, the house got destroyed and there was a bunch oh, of kids getting out of hand. And dude. <laughs> yeah. One of your moms is on TV and I was talking about ignorance, it. man. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Oh, yeah, it was this tiny little uh, really crappy house that, uh, on West Des Moines. Real about the size of this room, actually. Yeah, and we shoved about yeah, we 400 people in it. And, and uh, every time we'd move the uh, rafters or whatever, the beams that were holding up the, you know, the, the floor were, were Yeah, the ceiling in the basement was literally... The director's coming in, he's like, Stop you, know, you, guys, you guys can get into it, but just don't move. You know? Yeah. So it's like, well, what are we supposed to do, man? The twist? Shut up. So, but so did you have to pay for the house or the damage? Yeah, we, yeah. we bought the house pretty much. <laughs> you well, did? Roadrunner did. Probably, probably, All right. Well, thanks, Roadrunner. <laughs> let's check no, it out. Let's, check, let's see the video. The house. Okay, let's check Here the video. Here it is. Out. So you can see what they're talking about. Check it out. Slipknot with duality. There you hear Slipknot's appearance on the Headbangers Ball. Always awesome. See one of your favorite bands on Headbangers Ball. Think about watching uh, Kurt Cobain. Wearing that uh, yellow prom dress from like the 70s on there talking. And also, uh, what was the other one? Alice in Chains. They were at a water park, and which ended up being a super dangerous water park that lots of people died at that they filmed that episode at. But yeah, anytime you're on the Headbangers Ball, you're definitely making some noise. Back in the day, at least, that was, that was the Bible for metalheads back in the day. But you heard him talking about Rick Rubin on that one as he was the producer of Volume 3, The Subliminal Versus. Let's hear what Slipknot thought about Rick Rubin. Slipknot is happy with their latest record, Volume 3, The Subliminal Versus, but vocalist Corey Taylor said that it was not a happy experience overall. 
Taylor didn't like working with esteemed producer Rick Rubin. During an interview with Taylor and guitarist Jim Root in support of the forthcoming Stone Sour album, Taylor at first said, My grandmother told me if you don't have anything nice to say, then don't say anything at all. Corey and Jim then offered the following for Rubin and the studio experience for the Knott's most recent album. I have problems with the way Rick works, and he knows that. And, uh, but I love the guy. I mean, he's a really nice dude, and he's very, very artistic. I just, I'm a little more hands-on, let's put it that way. So uh, I'm glad I did it, and uh, we got a great album out of it. I, don't, I can't speak for Jim, of course. I mean, I, I thought it was great. It was fun. Got to live in a house on Laurel, Can Laurel Canyon, and yeah, yeah, that place was awesome. I mean, Rick, I didn't really see him that often, you know. So I mean, to say that he produced the record, I don't. I guess you need to look into your definition of what producing a record is, and for each person, that's a little bit different. You exactly. know what I mean? Um, we had a really good engineer on that record named Greg Fiddleman, and it was a joy yeah. to work with him every day. And all you know, all in all, it was a great experience, and I think. I think we got a, a brilliant record out of it. Yeah. You know, it's, my, it's my favorite Slipknot record. It is. And there you hear Corey and Jim talking about the actual recording process with Rick Rubin or without Rick Rubin, as Corey was talking about. But nonetheless, it did, whether you care about the Grammys or not, Slipknot had been nominated numerous times for a Grammy, and they finally took one home for this album. It was for Before I Forget in 2006. They didn't really care about it. I heard like a couple of the band members talking about it. Said they used it for like a doorstop or put it on their toilet. Just to, it was just funny to have around. But the funniest thing that I've seen from Slipknot at the Gr Grammys was the time that uh, the Tonight Show was interviewing people. They had somebody there trying to cut jokes and have funny interviews, and he came across clown. I'm here now with Slipknot. You guys are up for best metal band. Who would who would win in a fight? You or Ronald McDonald? You know, man, I don't know what to talk to you about, to be honest. You don't think we have anything in common? Uh, I'm pretty sure we don't have anything in common. Well, I'm a, I'm a heavy metal rocker. Are you? Yeah, if, you, if, I, if there was a heavy metal song about me, what would it be called? Jackass. What's that? Jackass. Jackass would be my song. Let me hear a couple lyrics. You're a jackass. That's a hit, dude. There you hear the Tonight Show running into the wrong person on the red carpet of the Grammys if they're trying to get some comedy when he's not trying to be comedic. And he wasn't trying to be comedic, it sounded like, and that interview was pretty damn short. But that almost wraps up the uh, talk about the subliminal versus era. Of course, every chapter corresponds with the member of the band, and this is chapter four. So, of course, we're going to talk about Jim Root, the guitarist of the band. He's going to talk about how he turned down Slipknot early on. But we didn't know what to do with it. We didn't know where to take it, you know, and, and it was just kind of like the same thing over and over again. Well, that, that band essentially fell apart. And around that time, around the time that band fell apart, I, uh, I just kind of lost interest in music for a little bit. I was uh, kind of to the point, you know, I was like 21 or 22 years old and I was like, well, you know, if we haven't made it by now, you know, I'm 21, I'm 22 years old. It's really no sense in trying anymore, you know. So I kind of put the guitar down and just kind of started working and turned into like a, I don't know, kind of a scumbag, you know, like doing drugs and partying all the time. I was out of it and uh, Andy, one of the original guys from Slipknot, called me up. He's like, hey man, we're at South River recording. 
you know, we're gonna, we're trying to go for it, you know, we're gonna put out a record and we're gonna try to shop for a label. And I was like, I knew who was in the band, you know, I knew it was, um, you know, I knew Donnie Steele had been in the band, but he just left and that's who they were calling me to replace. And, you know, Josh Brainerd was in the band and it was Clown and Andy and Joey, you know, and Joey, I knew he was a monster drummer from the Modifidious days. Cause like I said, the scene, we all knew each other from the scene. We'd all played with each other's bands. And I was pretty insecure about my playing at that time because I hadn't been playing because Atomic Opera had ended and I was having a little uh, bout with drugs of my own and I was having more fun doing drugs than playing guitar because I'd, you know, basically thrown the towel in on playing guitar at that point. So they called me up and asked me if I wanted to join Slipknot and, you know, because I'm an insecure human being, I was like, no, nah, I can't, you know, I can't, you know, thanks for the offer, but you know, I, I don't think I'm, I don't think, I, I don't think my skills are up to what you guys are doing right now, you know. And there you hear Jim Root turning down Slipknot when they initially offered him a spot in the band. And how good is Jim Root at guitar? Good enough that he's actually able to turn down Slipknot a second time and still end up being in Slipknot. Around the time that we were getting some of that negative feedback, um, I was just at home after work one day and the phone rang. You know, my roommates, oh, hey, phone for you. I answer the phone and it's like Joey and Clown. And I'm like, the fuck are you guys calling me for? You know? And Ross Robinson's on the phone with them. And they had already been out recording the first self-titled Slipknot record in Malibu. After I had joined Slipknot, and he was doing another band called Dead Front, and we ended, you know, we ended up asking him to join. I was just like, this is gonna be something really special, you know, because I knew that his style would blend so well with Slipknot's in the way that it, you know, Stone Sours had elevated just by him being in the band, you know? Like, hey Jim, you know, man, clown's talking. You know, we always liked you as a guitar player and we always, you know, thought you were a real cool dude and everything, but uh, you know, we wanna know if you wanna come out and jam with us. And, uh, you know, we want to know if you want to join Slipknot. So for the second time in my life, I said no <laughs> to Slipknot. I was like, no, I'm kind of happy being in Dead Front. And uh, that's cool, you know. Thanks, but no thanks. I was still a little bit bitter about the way they took Corey out of Stone Sour, too, you know, because we had a really good thing going. So they called. They called a couple of times, actually. And I was just like, man, I, you know, I can't do that to these guys. I got to stay here and just try to, try to do it on my own. We were playing a show with Dead Front in like Iowa City or Cedar Rapids or something and there was nobody there and shit just wasn't really, didn't seem like it was moving forward. It seemed like it just kind of hit a wall. A friend of mine named Zach Dieter was with me at the show and I told him, you know, hey look, Sean and Joey called me up and asked me if I wanted to join Slipknot. You know, they're out in Malibu recording with Ross Robinson right now and I think they've got a deal with Roadrunner to do a record. And Zach, you know, being how Zach is, looked at me, he's like, what are you, stupid? And I was like, well, I guess, what do, you, what do you mean? And he's like, look, Jim, very few times in life do you get a chance to like move forward or take a step, take a leap, you know? Um, this is one of those times. He's like, you, you can come back and do what you're doing now. You can always come back to do what you're doing here, but you've got an opportunity. Maybe it'll work, maybe it won't. You need to see if it'll work take a risk, you know what I mean? And I was like, yeah, Zach, thanks, <laughs> you know? So I got up from the table and went to the payphone at the back of the club and 
you know, I had Clown's phone number in my wallet still, and I called Clown Collect on like a Saturday night or something. He answered his phone, yo, man, what's up? I was like, hey, uh, did you guys find a guitar player yet? He's like, nope. And then a week later, I was in Malibu recording with Ross Robinson that quick, you know. And there you hear Jim Root talking about how he turned down Slipknot, turned him down again, and then eventually joined the band, thank God, because, dude, you can't really think of anybody else that could take his place in the band. And he's one of those guys that brings the, the musicianship to Slipknot for sure. You could tell uh, Joey and Paul always go in there and lay the uh, skeleton down. And then you got you got Jim and Mick that comes in there and adds their flavor to it. And without that, it's not a Slipknot sound at all. But that's pretty much going to wrap up chapter four of notumentary what we'll do now is quickly get into chapter five about the silent assassin craig jones how many people are buried in back of your house and that will bring an end to chapter five of notumentary Welcome to Chapter 6 of the Not Umentary, right here on the Homer's Radio Network, as we've already covered. Chapters 1 through 5, we'll be getting in to Chapter 6, and of course, the chapter numbers correspond with the band members, and this is none other than Clown, by far my favorite member of the band. I don't know if I'd be into Slipknot as much as I am without the art and the just the uh, visual presentation that Clown has given Slipknot. If you talk to any of the band members, they always say he's one of the key contributors to any kind of look that Slipknot has, the art, the uh, the artwork on the actual CDs, the discs themselves. Hell, now he's making movies, making videos, but what we're going to do in this episode is cover Sean Clown Cran. And we're going to start it off with exactly why he started the band and how the band started. Yeah, first question, just a general one to get, get started. What was the main philosophy behind creating Slipknot? We could spend months and months and months going into everything that led up to the creation of, you know, one of the greatest bands ever. Uh, but I'll give you a quick scenario. Um, I basically was married with two children and had a welding job. I would have to be at work at about 5.30 in the morning, which means I would have to leave at 4.30 because I like to be early. So I'd find myself falling asleep on the road on the way back, actually down in the ditch and coming back. And I started to think to myself that, you know, that this is not how I wanted to live. So I started making a lot of comp tapes, a lot of comp CDs to listen to, to kind of refresh my mind. I can remember a day um, that my wife had come out of my house and let me know that one of my uncles had been murdered. And it was a, a, a gang initiation kind of thing. And it was actually on America's Most Wanted. And um, they never found the killers because it was, you know, it was a random quick, thing that had that happened I was thinking how uh, short life is and how random life is and that you really don't know what life is going to throw you so it kind of was a parallel theme of me falling asleep in the car while having two children and a wife and I can remember cleaning up my shop that day 
and my wife was sitting on the back porch and I remember walking up to her and saying that um, I was going to get back into music because I had felt that I could reach the most amount of people at once with the message that I felt that I was given in this world to give. And um, I actually remember telling her um, that, you know, she was like, okay, cool, you're gonna be in a band, you're gonna jam, you still gotta be here to put the kids to bed and help feed and do these kinds of things. And I was like, you don't understand, I'm, I'm gonna make the biggest band in the world. I'm gonna focus all my energy and I'm going to tighten up every loose end from the way we tie our shoes, to the way we play, to the way we look, to the way we act, to the way we talk, to the way, the, the way we walk into a venue. I'm gonna tighten it all up and it's not gonna fail and it's gonna be noticed and if it's not noticed, I'm gonna kick the door in. So what was the message? Um, you know, that's a really good question. I grew up, um, um, I, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna say this with as much love as that I can. Um, I grew up in an alcoholic family, um, and a, a lot of it was kept from me until a later age. Um, I had noticed a lot of it instinctively, so I had built up a lot of rage and a lot of anger uh, that I was unaware of. Um, because people weren't taking the time to explain what I was noticing. So the message was a rooted evil almost of anger. And uh, when I said that I wanted to reach as many people that I could, I wanted to reach the people that I felt maybe had similar feelings to me because I was never told what was going on. And I had felt that maybe by giving my message I might meet people that had similar feelings or understandings on how I felt and maybe through that we could connect and the overall goal was to get some sort of salvation for myself. Why did Slipknot become this great vehicle to express the rage and the anger and the sense of isolation and all the things you've been talking about. You were creating something more than just a band. We have a song called Surfacing and there's a line in that song that says, don't ever judge me. And if there was anything that I thought had to be on my gravestone or that I felt that we preached and that we wanted people to know, it would be that statement. So what happened when we started, um, um, our merchandising became an anomaly. And these kids would buy everything. You know, we had t-shirts that said, fuck it all on it. And these kids would buy these t-shirts and they would go to school. And they would sit in class. And there wouldn't be one or two in class. There'd be five or six. So all the people that kind of turned their backs on these kids, they knew one or two of them, but they didn't know these other two felt the same way. So these other kids had to take a good look at who these kids were. And now all of a sudden these kids had a purpose. I've talked to hundreds if not thousands of kids that would say that they would wear the same t-shirt every day in school for the entire year, have their mom wash that t-shirt every night so they could wear that statement, fuck it all, don't ever judge me. 
And these are the kids that we represent, and that's why we are a culture. And there you hear Clown talking about why he started the band and his influences. We'll hear now from what inspired him about his masks and the music of Slipknot. The outside explains the inside. Mask one, barely see the eyes, barely hear me. Creepy ass fucking clown. That clown will kill you. That clown doesn't think. That clown doesn't care. There's just something not right about it, and I think that's a little bit of the mentality of the band. There's just, just really not something right about it, you know what I mean? Second clown, don't talk to me. Not available. Not welcome. Get the fuck out of here. Look at my face. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want you around. I have nothing to say. This is how the world feels. I'm part of the world. Deal with it. Not a good clown, for sure. That clown was asked to never come back, actually, by certain people. Third clown, repairing. Repair from those two previous things. Those are animals. Third guy, coming back to life, few more ideas, some different shit, some healing, few more dances, few more colors, a lot more saturation, chill a little bit, but still that guy. Fourth clown, debauchery. I invent the evilest thing I possibly can put on my face. Constructed of leather, cop shades, a chrome Ming the Merciless hat, put it all together, can't see shit, can't breathe, can't, can't feel, can't do anything. Very painful, that was a personal pain. I lost my dad the album before and my mom the album before and that's how I felt. I didn't want to talk, I didn't want to do interviews. I just want to be in my own world and be reminded. The only album done in Iowa and it's my least favorite. No tension, no pain, just efficiency. Able to go home, able to sleep. That's not good. It's not good for what we do. As we started doing photos, I took my photos in this abandoned school. Just outside the hallway, there's a sign that said, all hope is gone. Members of the band, you know, mainly Corey, I remember, saying that would be a great song title and probably even better album title. I hated it. I'm as slipknot as you can be. And we're pretty known for being against, but I'll tell you, even though I hate, even though life is hard, and I use pain as a paintbrush, there's always hope. I was confused with that until Paul died. Then it made sense. That's painful shit to have a foreshadowing like that. After that lesson, when I get vibes like that for things, all it does is remind me it could be a foreshadowing, and that's fucking scary. The fifth record, most beautiful epiphany. You have your whole life to make your first record. What I learned on our fifth was you have the rest of your life to do it again. Each album is based off a temperature, a circumstance. This circumstance for this album, unfortunately, was death. Now you hear Clown talking about the inspirations behind each of his masks from each album and also the, the mind state that went into each album. 
you can just hear the emotion in that dude's voice. And the uh, earlier interview I played from the uh, Iowa era, where he was just just intimidating the hell out of the interviewer. You can just you can just tell how intense Clown is constantly. It seems like, especially whenever he's in Clown mode. I know Sean Cran. He's he's a different guy. Even Corey will talk about. I've heard Corey talk about. Working with Clown and working with Sean is two different things. And whenever Clown is on, Clown is on. And he's not one to be trifled with, as the uh, Tonight Show interviewer found out on the Grammy red carpet. We'll keep it moving now as Clown's going to talk about his titanium drums that give him that special sound. Any particular reason why your drum kit's made out of titanium? Not mine, not mine, yes. Or his, the space shuttle titanium? <laughs> I'll, I'll try to make this as brief as possible. Um, when we came up with the idea with the three drummers, when I first started, you know, working on the music and stuff, it was very important to me to have uh, the percussion. I was a main drummer, you know, and um, I wanted to have the three percussions. And uh, through prior recordings, we noticed that um, it was very easy to sound too much like Joey, you know, and he's such a great drummer that, you know, we would set up wood drums and then I would sound just like him. And then we'd have to get rid of my parts, you know. And it was really frustrating, and I hated that shit. So it was after years and years of working, and finally, you know, I'm a welder, and I make those sculptures and all that crazy shit, and I make all kinds of head cages and stuff. And I finally found this guy, and then I designed the fucking titanium drums, and he uh, he got them all done for me. He was the first guy who ever did, like, a, a titanium snare. And we made this set, and they have a tone unlike any other drum ever. You know, and I'm the only guy with, like, all four of those drums. It's not another person, you know. And now, when you listen to, like, the song surfacing, you know, you'll hear this whacked-out guitar come in, and then you'll hear Joey come in with hi-hat, and then Joey with bass drum, and then all of a sudden you'll feel this power. Boom, those are the two extra percussionists, you know. Finally, you know, we differentiated the three of us, you know. And it's important because that's a big part of the live thing, you know, the, the just the driving music behind it. And, you know... And plus, I, you know, I've always, both percussionists always broke our wood drums like fucking unreal. We just, I'm constantly breaking wood drums and just destroying them, and it gets expensive. So I finally bought something that costs a lot of money that I won't, you know, but they'll be destroyed too, so. And there you hear Clown talking about his titanium drums that he was sure that he would destroy as well as anything that Elsie tried to use for drums. And if you've ever seen a Slipknot show live, you know exactly why. They could get aluminium like uh, Wolverine's claws made out of, and those things are still going to be destroyed during the, uh, the Slipknot performance. And you heard in that interview Sean talking about how he created things. It wasn't just the metal sculptures and the uh, contraptions he would use to raise the, uh, the the drum risers that he would use to raise his drummers uh, drum kits and things like that. He's actually also started making movies and directing the Slipknot videos that were coming out later on. If you look at Slipknot videos early on before Sean took over, you can definitely tell that it was an outside influence. And then once Sean started directing the uh, music videos, you get, there's immediately more Slipknot feel to them. It seems like it's something that would come off of a Slipknot DVD release more than just some random music director's, music video director's opinion of what a Slipknot video should be. It's actual clown's vision of what a Slipknot video should be. And I think no video sums that up better than the devil and I. And we're going to hear about clowns behind the scenes making of it. Basically, this video is about finding past devils, past things, becoming one with it, and then doing away with it. Let's go through all the people. Number zero, Sid. 
picks his arm apart and his fingers, the things that are most important to him for scratching. Number seven, Mick, because he's isolated, because he wants to be isolated, to just make himself disappear in the isolation, so he ripped his face apart. It was horrifically disturbing. I don't like blood. Big reason why I used a lot of it. Number eight, Corey Taylor, lead singer. We all know this guy, I mean, but you know, lead singer's LSD, lead singer's disease, you know. Um, he's a front man. So it was only appropriate for his fucking head to blow up. He picked it, so you all know he wanted his head blown up. There's a couple new guys. You can just wait to figure that the fuck out. They're sparse, but they need to be because they're gonna earn everything. They're new. Fuck them. Number five, Craig Jones. Got a beautiful, beautiful dog. I love the dog because it's like the best actor ever. No ego, just kill. Chris Fane, number three. Birds, interesting. Chris, how do you want to die? I want to be torn apart by birds. Hmm. Aren't you scared of birds? Yes, I hate birds. Number four, James Root. Fuck, man. Full body explosion. Number six, myself. You know how it goes. Hung myself. But before I hung myself, I set myself on fire. You all can clean up the fucking mess. I'm gone. I want to know that everything that I did in this art was beyond my capability. So, the devil and I, clown, the brothers, Slipknot, the crew, everybody, thank you. Fucking had a blast. And there you hear Sean Clown Cran talking about the making of the devil in I video as he directed it. And I guess people other than just maggots were noticing that he had a pretty good eye for making art and making movies because he eventually started getting some offers to direct movies. And one of the movies he directed was Officer Down. Threatened my art and like every day. And I've given so much of me to the world like I very rarely win in the way that I need to. An artistic way so I must have taken that into my subconscious so I had this revelation now all good movies if you know anything about movies are that a question is asked in the beginning 
And at the end of the movie, the question is answered. Period. End of fucking story. Twist and turn. So it's question asked. Twist and turn. Twist and turn. Twist and turn. Climax. Viewers like, oh, shit. I think I'm starting to put this together. I think I'm drawing my own conclusion what I think this is about and how it's going to end. Twist and turn. Twist and turn. Question. Does the guy get the girl? You know, yes or no. Does he want the girl? Yes or no. Does he get the girl? You know, yes, he does. He likes her and he gets her. So I had a revelation about what the movie would be about because I've been thinking about it forever and I'm locked into a very documentary kind of thing. And um, I've been looking for that question. And in that subconscious state and that threat that hit me earlier, the two collided and because the fan was bugging me mm-hmm. somehow a pinball entered and I tilted man I had I had the question finally after all these years it was it's been in front of me the whole time but it's very simple and it has to be to be a good to make yeah. me make it work so I'm putting into a plan actually to give to my manager and say look man this is what I'm gonna fucking make but the only way it's gonna happen is if I film it that's the other thing yeah. because I was outside the bus with a phone talking to my wife in this movie and you could feel my pain and my sorrow and you could feel some other things and and what have you but the trick was was I was in the bus filming me and that was me telling myself that I have to film the shit because no one else knows man I am the gatekeeper to the sickness I know <laughs> Everybody's pain. I know everybody's behavior. I know where they run. I know where they hide. I know why they hide. I know why they need to hide. When they should hide. When they shouldn't hide. What they're hiding from. What they need not hide from. And I can do that for myself. And if I can get that, I can answer a pretty big question. And there you hear Clown talking about getting in to directing movies and how he wants 100% of the control, just like he wants with his art in Slipknot. And if you let Clown do what Clown does, you're going to get some pretty wicked shit out of it from everything I've ever seen that man make. But he keeps on making stuff. He had another ideal circa 2012 as he got the ideal. As, of course, Slipknot got their start on OzFest, so they decided to do their own festival called Knotfest. What's happening, everybody? It's Clown from Subnot. Got this thing coming called Knotfest. We're very proud of it. You know, so it's just our way of uh, trying to bring a great festival atmosphere with, you know, all the bands that we feel, you know, are in the same mindset, but right. completely different. You know, we're not like the Deftones, but they're friends of ours and we, we've toured together before. We love their music. Hopefully they love ours. We're friends, you know, stuff like that. And it just makes sense to give the kids, you know, the best that you could give them. It's like rock and roll summer camp. Yeah, it's going to be, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's not a circus because there's no elephants, you know, but it's definitely uh, uh, more of like a, you know, we're going more ritual, you know, lots of fire. Lots of just, you know, if you're not scared walking in the gate, then, you know, there's something wrong. You know, you got to kind of come in going, this is exactly what I've been waiting for, but it feels a little unsafe. So we thought, you know, it's not a get even thing. It's more like, you know, let's let's bring this 
to Iowa first and let's bring people from Chicago and stuff to this, you know? That's very cool. That's so, a very cool idea. Just, you know, it's just how we are. Born and raised in Des Moines, still live there. It's two and a half hours from my house, you know, and... Uh, play hometown. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's, it's, it is what it is and we just kind of stick to our roots. Yeah, it was Kiss. Kiss. I uh, was 13, I think, maybe 12. Was I that can't. Makeup on or makeup off? Makeup off, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that but, was my first Kiss tour. As you well. know, but uh, I just remember, you know, drinking a lot of beer in the parking lot. <laughs> Sorry, but you know, I did. I was super young, but walking in, knowing I had to have some sort of confidence. And I remember right off the bat, just uh, the diversity of people. I saw all schools, you know, all the high schools in Des Moines being represented, and no one was fighting. You know, it was all a, a common theme, and it was music. And, you know, you'd smell stuff in the air, and I'd be like, oh, you know, that goes on here. And, uh, and then, you know, I saw my first set of breaths, sorry, but, you know, and I just thought, well... I'm pretty much going to be doing this. I have to be around music. And there you hear Clown talking about Knotfest. As in 2012, they had the first ever Knotfest. And what I've got from it right here is Spit It Out from the first ever Knotfest 2012. We have to baptize this fucking thing. So how would you like to go down in history with us? One more fucking time, Wisconsin. Is that what you want? I said, is that what you fucking want? Then it's time for Knotfest 2. Spirit! Never give a damn in the first place. Maybe it's out there with the devil there. Can he interest the bottom of the bottom? Look at the problem solved. It's guilty. Make some fucking noise for me. 
for each and every one of you. How you fuckers doing over here? How many people here in Somerset, Wisconsin have seen Slipknot before? All right. How many people here, this is your very first evening with us tonight? Whether you've seen us before or not, you've heard the myths, you know the fucking legends, you know what fucking time it is! That is absolutely correct. It's time for each and every crazy motherfucker here to get down on the fucking ground right now. Shit, Joe. set my fucking watch to just how awesome you crazy motherfuckers are tonight. But not yet. Not yet. Not until I say, jump the fuck up. Not until I say, jump the fuck up. Is that clear? Not fast! <laughs> we may have earned our fucking arrest tonight, man. Then on my signal, unleash hell. Joey! Let's take these motherfuckers home, man. Let's out my sisters, we're gonna straight for them. Make no comments, don't look at me. I'm ready to take them out, bitch, I'm on the bill. Where are you gonna be in the next 10 years? Crewing on the food, how the ball kids give me never really gonna gag and I make it sick. We got sick when I've had all the good. Everybody's sick of me, shut the fuck up! Oh, 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 oh,
And there you hear Slipknot wrapping up the first ever Knot Fest in 2012 with the only way that it should have been wrapped up, spit it out, and of course the uh, entire audience, if you've never seen that or never experienced it, whenever the entire audience gets down on spit it out and then all jumps up at the end of the song whenever he says jump the fuck up, if you've never experienced that and this next Slipknot album that's rumored to be released in 2019 is indeed the last album, definitely get out to one of those shows on that tour cycle so you can see that live and in person because it's often imitated but never duplicated for sure as i've heard uh i've heard cory talk about as he's seen numerous bands have done that stunt on stage but the, it's it's never the same as slipknot i do believe in that interview he said it was either joey or clown that came up with that idea originally to do that and that was a slipknot original as far as far as i know and as far as i've never heard any other band start bitching and say hey we invented that so as far as i know that's pretty much officially credited the slipknot for coming up with that but they also did another thing pretty cool a couple years later actually four years later as it was the uh, 15th anniversary of iowa so they played the entire iowa album from front to back at not fest 2016 
there you hear Slipknot performing the Iowa album complete in its entirety at Knotfest 2016 with the 20-year anniversary of the self-titled album coming up. I hope either at an upcoming Knotfest 2019, maybe they play that whole album in its entirety, or even better, a tour. I've heard Clown and the rest of the band wants to get back to the small venues a self-titled 20th anniversary tour in small venues would pretty much be fucking heaven on earth for any maggot that wasn't around at that time or just wants to relive that experience from 1999 whenever you were able to see them at your local small club. That would be pretty fucking badass and tickets would sell out in about two minutes. But before we wrap up chapter six of the Notumentary, I want to play an interview I came across on YouTube. I came across it, I'd say around November of 2017, whenever I was first starting to uh, look into doing a Slipknot documentary. And I hadn't seen this before. And as soon as I seen it, it just immediately reignited my love of the band, of the music, of the message, their art, and the passion that they have for it. And as soon as I've heard this, I've pretty much been transferred back to 1999 whenever the album first came out i probably listened to two or three hours of slipknot music per day again since i've heard this interview with clown first things first so you gotta take a moment to yourself just for a second you gotta think about what just happened I have to think about my mom and dad who are deceased. I have to think about my wife who is not here. I have to think about my other two kids that are not here. I got to think about all the people that helped me be here. Man, I got to think about all those kids. And when that's done, we gotta take these fucking things off first because these suck. I was asked to let you see this face. Pretty fucking lucky to see it, actually. It's probably the first time. It might pretty much be the last time. But. In my life, I just want to give all I got. I'm away from my wife, I'm away from kids. My dad's gone, my mom's gone, my bass player's gone. I got good friends at home. And unless I'm out here fucking giving 190%, 200%, whatever percent it is, then I'm not doing it, man. I'm not doing it for the money. I'm not doing it for the ego, the publicity. I'm not doing it for anything else but art and love for salvation, so one day I have a little peace like the rest of us, and that's what every kid out there was, especially those kids that are told to sit where they have to stay so they can be safe because they're in a wheelchair. I do it for all of them and myself, so who knows if even what I'm saying makes sense because it's just tonight. If you get me tomorrow, it might mean something else. No matter where I go, you will find that. I mean, people people have this shit in their bunk, clown hair. It's, it's, it's everywhere. It will be everywhere forever. It's still not us, man. We just fucking kill ourselves 
for everybody and everything. Always have, always will. And when I take the mask off, I think to myself, no disrespect to people that work hard in this country and devote their whole lives to making things run, but I put myself through utter fucking hell all night long so I can take it off and know that I gave 190%. Tonight I tried to give fucking 300%. I don't know what I gave, but I gave a hell of a lot. And that's really what something that's about. That's why some of us wear masks. I don't wear a fucking mask. You better remember that always. I don't wear a mask. Never have, never will. You think whatever the hell you want, but I don't wear a mask. I don't need to. It's filth. I hate all bands. And I don't care. I have nothing but respect for anybody that makes art, but unless you're in this fucking band, and you just live in this filth, you don't know. There's a lot that goes into Slipknot. You'll never figure us out. You don't need to. I'm gonna take a fucking shower. I'm gonna sit over here because that's wet, because that's where Clown was. And I'm not stupid. I'm not gonna sit where Clown's at. I love art. I love people that dedicate their life to art. Art gives you some sort of peaceful place that allows you to be yourself. You, you know, you a little salvation. I've said it over and over and over again, uh, Slipknot's not a band, we're a culture. We have the Church of the Knot. We have the Altar of the Knot. We give the Sermon of the Knot to the Congregation of the Knot. And, uh, I guess if you're gonna have a church, man, you gotta be willing to nail yourself to the cross, and it's pretty much what I do every night. And there you hear Clown in a very emotional post-concert interview. Heard from Clown first, and then you heard from Sean in the second half of the interview as you heard him say, I'm not going to sit where Clown sit, as it was directly after a show. He came back and filmed the first part of that, then went and took a shower, and then Sean came out and talked. Pretty fucking cool interview that, that that dude just is so emotional and into the art that Slipknot makes and just the art that he makes in general as this whole episode's been about the art that he makes. But that's going to wrap up this episode, the chapter six of the Notchumentary, all about Clown, the one and only Sean Clown Cran. Move on to chapter seven. Welcome to Not Umentary Chapter 7. This chapter will focus on All Hope is Gone and also, of course, as the chapters go along with the band member number, it'll focus on Mick Thompson, the other guitarist in Slipknot. And what, what we're going to do right now is hear Corey Taylor talk a little bit about All Hope is Gone. The new album, which is coming out in August, uh, is called All Hope is Gone. I think it's our strongest work to date. It's... Uh, it, it's 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 basically got so many elements from our first three albums, and yet it's culminating into 
a whole new realm for us. You know, I mean, we've we've gotten really strong as far as like songwriting goes. We've gotten really strong as far as uh, you know me personally writing lyrics, writing melodies, you know, keeping the hooks, arranging everything. Um, we've just gotten really good at doing what we do and uh, it, it just seems like everything has been building towards this so I'm really, really proud of it. There's a song called Gehenna on there which is very sludgy and slow but it's heavy as hell. Um, and it's, it's probably one of my proudest vocal moments. Like there's so much going on and there are three part harmonies going on and, but, and yet it's still incredibly eerie and incredibly uh, dark. So uh, I can't wait for people to hear it. The image of us on uh, the, the cover itself is, is very jarring actually. It's very, it's startling, it's vibrant and uh, it just represents so much of who we are, you know. So this time around it was like, you know what, let's do it again and and really show that the, not only is the band back, but we're connected again, you know? And uh, it was basically, you know, nine fingers closing in one gigantic fist. Basically the inspiration behind this mask was I wanted to make children very uncomfortable. And it's working, let's put it that way. I've been compared to a lot of things, but my favorite was the first night we played. Somebody compared me to those little squeeze dolls from like the 80s where you like the eyes would pop out. When I sat down and I designed it, I really wanted something that was very startling and very, you know, just in your face and you like have to deal with it. And it was kind of a reaction to the, the pretty boy thing that I kind of went through with Stone Sour. And I wanted to go complete 180 with that and just be like, guess what, I'm back. And now you can't look me in the eye. If I look at you, it makes people really, I have a friend who can't look me in the face when I wear this because it makes her cry. So I, I mission accomplished, basically. And there you hear Corey Taylor talking about All Hope Is Gone and the recording of it, which All Hope Is Gone, of course, came out in 2008. It was the fourth official full-length album from Slipknot on a major label, of course, not, can't, not counting Mate, Feed, Kill, Repeat. The self-titled in 1999, Iowa in Volume 3, Seliminal Versus in 2004, and All Hope is Gone right here in 2008. And once the record was recorded, they started the they started the promotion train once again for All Hope is Gone. I think you guys wanted to film us in our dressing room. Guess what? No. I don't care who you are. My mom doesn't come in the dressing room. For over a decade, the members of Slipknot have held on to a secret. Don't care. Got it. What sacrifices must a musician make, both physically and mentally, to summon one's darkest demons for the entertainment of others? Every time I put it on, it's like, what the f*** are we doing? On this episode of Big, after some convincing, we unlock the doors of Slipknot's dressing room to show you the band's sacred pre-show transformation. Baseball guys, they don't scrub their jocks. I do not wash my mask. The ritual uniting of nine members that together form a musical war machine that is undeniably the best in the game. We don't play country music. This isn't hip-hop. This is fast, aggressive, violent. This is the world of Slipknot.
would have been much easier for me not to have been born. And uh, I don't think I grew up until I was 35, until I lost my father, which I believe really helps the art because for me, the pain is where the art comes from. There's a ritual that kind of goes into it. You know, you put on, you put on the, the crap, as we call it. The two hours before a show, what happens in there is just salvation. I play tonight. I don't leave four kids and a wife to come out here for sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I go out and get me 50 minutes of God. And my God doesn't need a church or some Eucharist. No. All I've ever had was music. places I don't want to go to like a lot of the stuff that I write you kind of have to get yourself mentally there and it takes a lot more than stretching out and doing some push-ups but this helps a lot it's the mask when you put that on man you are able to tap into so many different things it's that moment in every horror movie the ah moment I feel like I live that every second that I put this on. What you see right now is pretty much, it, it is me, but this is uh, all the things that you don't want to see about me. It taps into something that, you know, a lot of people don't want to admit about themselves. Anything this does is dangerous. Very dangerous. When this goes on, I'm in charge. I just wanted something that was very striking. So I wanted it very devoid of emotion. I wanted it very devoid of humanity. I wanted it to just be something that basically scared the hell out of the kids. Unfortunately, my son loves it. He, he, he grabbed it and he was just like, he's like, this is cool, daddy. I was like, well, I failed. Every day of my life. <laughs> Um, every day I play in Phoenix. Let's put it that way. Every time I put it on, it's like, what the hell are we doing? We're the dumbest beer guffin I've ever thought of in my life. You know, it's sweating and you're wearing these masks and then there's makeup on under it and that stuff starts sweating and bleeding into your eyes and your eyes start burning and then they turn completely cloudy to where you can't really see at all anymore. And, and then if there's a light or something, it's the, the light is extra bright and I'll end up almost walking off stage. I've had a few shows like that, yeah. It's not these lights, these cameras, none of that crap has ever been anything. Tonight, when we do what we do, whether it's a good show or a bad show, it will be a living experience. It's all about going and ruling the show right now. I'm in it. I'm in it right now. And when I go out there, I'm going to be in it for 50 minutes. This is, this is pain, bro.
it starts several hours before it crescendos because I'll just be sitting there like this after a show just oh and then there's the descent preparing for landing boom it switches and that is the best part of the day is being released from the art good night everybody and there you hear Slipknot and their mental mind state and what they were thinking around the time of All Hope is Gone, the tour cycle that they were promoting that album from. But of course, the chapters as we're on chapter 7 always correspond with the band member as well as I try to do a chronological rundown of the band. And then also each episode give the uh, give some info on the band member that correlates with the number of the chapter. And that's number 7. That's of course Mick Thompson. So Mick, you've been uh, been off the road, away from Slipknot for a while. How's that been? Fattening. I uh, I enjoy sleeping and eating and relaxing, and uh, yeah, it takes its toll. You quickly forget, like you know, the impact you have on people. I mean, and the magnitude of, of some of the shit that you do, because. I mean, to us, we're just doing it, you know what I mean? Like, it's not a big fucking deal, and then later when you see it, and you've been away from it for so long, and it's uh, it's easier to appreciate, you know, what we actually do, and uh, the gravity. And you look at the footage with, like, like, all those thousands of people going nuts. I mean, do you miss that? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, I like my quiet time, and I like to be left to fuck alone, but, uh... My God, it's fun to be able to do that too. You know what I mean? It's like it's two radically different lives. And that's what's cool is like I can, I can go away from all the noise and, and the bullshit and people and whatever, and just go kind of hibernate for a while, and then I can go right back to it. So it's, it's uh, rather convenient for me actually. Really? I fucking love it. What's the, like the mental and physical effects of being in Slipknot for ten years? Well, it's been a, like a. It's always changing, because we're always changing, you know. It takes a physical toll, that's for sure. All my life, I could never crack my neck. Now I just turn my head a little bit and it's fucking going. Uh, You you wake up stiff and sore. I've blown my back out before. Uh, Pinched sciatic nerve, you know, we were on tour, you know, so for a few months I could barely walk. I will not be defeated, you know what I mean? I don't give a fuck if it hurts, I'm gonna go out there and, and in fact, when things start to hurt, I just do it more. I'm like, you know, fucking, like, that's not too much. You know, that's not more than you can take. And just to prove it, here's this. Right. You know, I'll do it harder. And then later, I'm like, Jesus Christ, why did I do that? There's always been a lot of anger and rage and hatred in Slipknot's music. How much of that comes from you? Life pretty much sucks, no matter where you are, no matter who you are. You know what I mean? Like, it, it, you don't have to look very far to find some sort of fucking injustice or uh, or wrong that shouldn't be taking place, and that shit pisses me off. Uh, I say what I think, you know, and I mean what I say, and that's uh, often unpopular. You know, my attitude is uh, at least I'm fucking honest. You know, I'm not gonna bullshit. You. I'm gonna tell you exactly what I think and exactly why I think it, and whether you like it or not is another, you know, another fucking story. Um, you know, and I wish people would be that way with me. Yeah. You know, I mean, you kind of have to take everything anyone says, in, you know, in life with a grain of salt, because no one's going to just come out and fucking tell you exactly what they think. I will. 
you know, many of us have fairly strong personalities. You know, and when you mix uh, some ego and some strong personality, and and also, you know, different, I mean, when you're put into a situation where you got to be around the same people all the fucking time, you're gonna end up, you know, getting sick of each other. You're gonna have idiosyncrasies that start fucking grating on your nerves. Right. Where something with casual fucking, you know, contact, no big deal. But when you're forced to live on a fucking metal tube uh, with someone for months on end, you know, that fucking little thing where they pick their nose and flick it out on the fucking bus floor uh, out of their bunk will start to piss you off after a while. But, you know, that's, that's why I'm a total advocate of give us a couple months on the road, give us about a month home. Go back out, come back home for the, like, enough to, to settle in and whatever, and then any sort of stupid little differences you may have had are erased. Right. And you're back to being good friends again. It never really gets tense, really. Really? No, uh-uh. No, I mean, I, I don't really even yell much. <laughs> no, we're, I mean, we're, we're pretty fucking civil, you know what I mean? And, and we all have a respect for each other, and it's, you know, there's certain fucking, there's certain things you just don't do. Yeah. You know, fucking yell and name call and that kind of shit really doesn't further anyone's, uh, anyone's cause. So, uh, you know, we're sort of mature. I end up, uh, in a position to you know meet a lot of people that I wouldn't necessarily meet otherwise. I mean, I'm good friends with most of my favorite bands. Makes it tough, you know, tough to really trust anybody. Right. You know, uh, you can always be the novelty friend. I mean, so it's. You know, I do a lot of. Uh, I keep people at a distance for the most part. You know, I mean, I can be friendly, but you know, trust is earned and it takes a long time. Yeah. You know, I mean, because. Most people are fucking bullshit and after something anyway, and so uh, I, I don't fucking waste my time. I spend a lot of time at home. I don't go out much. The neighbors are scared of me. When you're headlining your own shows, you know, and you've got just mad amounts of people, you know, when you're in a fucking arena, it's like, how the hell did this happen? That's a lot of motherfuckers. Like, I don't, usually, I'm too inconvenienced to even go bother with parking at a show that size. Like, 15,000 people? That's a traffic jam. I'm going to stay home and masturbate. <laughs> like, these people actually got out of their fucking house and came down to see us. Holy shit. Huge advocate of masturbating. So, uh, therapeutic? Keeps the body count low. Awesome. I find my urge to kill... Dwindles after a good nut. Watch this DVD with your parents, kids. <laughs> there you are. Mick Thompson, number seven, of course, from Slipknot, talking about his experiences in the band Slipknot and touring with nine, or eight other guys in a nine-man band, especially in the early days whenever they were all crammed on the probably one shitty bus. That had to be fucking crazy. But the thing I like about Mick is his attitude where he said, there's not a lot of people that will tell you exactly what they think about you regardless of what your reaction's going to be. And that attitude the fucking attitude to have. That's the attitude that I try to have. I try to maintain it. That's an attitude I learned through Slipknot and other music I listen to. For example, like this... Uh, this documentary, of course, like I said numerous times, is on homersradio.com. We have a uh, we have a uh, radio network here in Owensboro, Kentucky, where we cover local and high school, college, and semi-pro sports. And, of course, University of Kentucky is the biggest thing there is in the Bluegrass State. And after they got beat in the NCAA tournament, 
I I don't like John Calipari, the coach there. I can't stand Matt Jones, who hosts Kentucky Sports Radio, who, funny enough, the uh, the homers, who are me and uh, my two, two uh, co-owners of Homers Radio, Stephen A. Turner, who's a huge maggot himself, and David Clark, we actually got to host Kentucky Sports Radio one time. But I can't stand Kentucky Sports Radio, or at least the main guy on it, Matt Jones. He's a guy that graduated from Duke. Yet somehow he is. Uh, he went to Duke and then ended up becoming the number one fan for UK. And if you know anything about UK basketball, Duke's like their number one rival. I have no idea how he ever became the uh, number one fan for the uh, University of Kentucky. And after they got after UK got beat, I went on our website, homersradio.com, and put out a diatribe, pretty much shooting down. Anybody that uh, had anything to do with Kentucky basketball, I shot off on John Calipari, Matt Jones, the uh, culture around the entire college program at Kentucky, and I knew it was going to, I knew that what was going to happen, I knew 99% of the people reading it was going to get pissed off about it, and oddly enough, probably six hours after I published it, I'm I'm arguing on Twitter with uh, Matt Jones from Kentucky Sports Radio and numerous other UK fans, but that was on my chest. I had to get it out. And people were asking me, like, why did why'd you have to get that out? Why couldn't you just keep it to yourself? And I was like, man, I've been raised by Slipknot, Corn, and St. Clown Posse, and too many other DIY-type artists to ever hold my opinion or feel bad that I let my opinion out. If those people don't like my opinion, that's, that's for them. That's not for me to worry about. But like I said, that attitude that Mick has, the attitude that I try to always have, I love that attitude that he was talking about right there. But... Mick doesn't talk a lot as far as doing interviews. Any kind of interviews I really came across, he was more talking about guitar techniques and the picks he uses and all the uh, accessories that he uses. But I was able to find one cool story about the first ever guitar that Mick came across. I was 10 years old and I was in a guitar shop. Uh, We used to have a guitar shop at our mall just down the street from uh, where I lived. And uh, I saw this hanging. Well, it's twin brother. And uh, it was in my price range, and it looked like guitars that I'd seen uh, with a sunburst. You know, I'd seen Hendrix with a sunburst and, uh, you know, and whatever, so it was familiar to me. And uh, I had to have it. So uh, I got a paper route and delivered papers for a month and a half until I got enough money to get it up off of layaway. And then uh, I immediately quit my paper route. Never delivered another paper. Didn't even tell my boss that I quit, which... You know, when you're 10, you don't know that whole two weeks notice thing. Not that you should really care anyway. Um, so after quitting the paper out, being a little uh, short-sighted, I didn't have an amp. Fortunately, uh, one of my uncles had an old airline tube amp that he hadn't been using for years uh, that he got when he was in high school. So he sent it to me um, with nothing but a clean tone to use for a few months. Uh, eventually... I got a, what, a DoD FX50B, I believe, overdrive, um, which again, I thought I hated, but uh, one of those things that I had to go back and buy again, um, just being drunk and nostalgic. And, uh, and this is the guitar that uh, my newest Ibanez um, is built off of. It's um, the same exact model as the first one I ever owned. Unfortunately, it's not the same one. Uh, I stupidly... Uh, but sort of rightfully so, uh, thought it sucked and decided it was time to sell uh, when I was in junior high. And I let it go for like $40, uh, convinced that it was dog shit because uh, whatever neighbor kids had much better guitars than me with whammy bars and I just had a little, you know, fake telly. So 
one night getting uh, really nostalgic and uh, having an eBay and PayPal account. <laughs> I, uh, I I got on eBay just for shits and giggles to see if they had anything like this. I never imagined they would, and uh, and I found it. And uh, it just happens to be the exact same color, uh, the exact same model, and made in the same year as uh, the original one that I had, that I got when I was 10 years old. So, uh, so I picked it up. And then the next day I woke up, sober, and uh, realized that I had been on it. <laughs> and, uh, and it was kind of like Christmas morning, really. And there you hear Mick Thompson talking about the first ever guitar he bought, then sold, then kind of bought back again. And that's going to pretty much wrap up Chapter 7, which is, of course, about Mick Thompson and All Hope is Gone, the 2008 release by Slipknot. That's going to bring us into the final chapter, Chapter 8. Chapter 8, the final chapter of Not Umentary. This chapter, of course, is going to be about Corey motherfucking Taylor, number 8. And it's going to wrap up the uh, discography so far of Slipknot as it'll be. Talk about the gray chapter, point five, the gray chapter to be precise. And what we're first going to do is we're going to hear about Corey way before he got into the band where he was watching Slipknot live and knew he was going to join the band. Entire set, and I was just mesmerized i was blown away and i i couldn't tell you why but and i've got on record as saying this something in my head said i'm gonna sing for these guys someday mm. i don't know why i mean i dedicated everything to stone sour yeah, you know? yeah. I mean, it was essentially my band you know and but just for some reason i just it was like wow you know i mean it just it just struck me and then a year later they asked me to join so when the call came was it call? There was, was no it? call. No. They walked into the porn shop. Oh, really? They walked in. Yeah, <laughs> mind you. What, all late, all late. <laughs> no, 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 no. It was. Uh, <laughs> now here's a here's a little fun fact. When I saw them, they were only a seven piece. Right. Okay. Yeah, because Andy, the the original singer, uh, played uh, percussion and sang. Right. I mean, he's a fantastic. He's in a band called uh, Pain Face back in Des Moines. Right. Check them out. They're really, really good. Um, they have a web page. I can't think of what it is. We'll go to Facebook. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, I, uh, it, it was, it was, yeah, I mean, they, were, they were essentially a seven piece. Um, and I was at the porn shop that night and I was, um, you know, it was midnight to eight. And I, I mean, I wasn't expecting to see anyone that I knew, mm. you know, to be honest. Every once in a while, some friends of mine would come up and we'd play cards and whatnot and drink copious amounts of coffee. Uh -huh. But, uh, in walks, uh, there was three or four of them. I know Clown was there, Joey was there, I think Mick was there, and I believe Craig. Right. Um, but you, you never know if Craig's there, because he doesn't say a damn word. It never does. I mean, and I've known the cat for 20, over 20 years. Right. I've had maybe 10 good conversations with him. <laughs> That's how silent that killer is. Um, they walked in and they did a, they did a lap 
around the, the, the shop first. Like they didn't come right up to the counter. Right. I'm like, what's going on? Now I know there's this whole mythology around this 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 meeting right now where Clown was just like, we threatened to kick his ass if he didn't join the band. That's all false. I am here to pop his little bubble because that's not what happened. It's very lovely thought to think <laughs> that they was like, we love you, we'll kill you. No, Dildo in that hand. is not at all what happened. Um, so I'm sitting at the counter, they wave, and I'm like, what are these guys doing here, you know? And they walked around, they walked in and checking, oh, look at that movie, Blah, you know, walk by the, the, what we called the soft goods. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they uh, came, they rounded around, they came up to the, uh, the counter, and Clown, I mean, much to his uh, credit, he just he was just like, he just went, look, I'm not gonna be around the bush. We want you to be our singer. We want you to try out, we want you to be our singer. And then they kind of laid it out for me, and I just kind of, and this part's true, I stared at the counter, I was like, uh, you know, I mean, I'd never been asked to join another band before, yeah. you know, especially something like this, where like, it was so weird, man, because literally a year, year and a half before, I was just like, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna sing for this band, yeah. and all of a sudden, they're coming to me, and I'm like, uh, uh, uh. So I went in, and I, uh, I recorded some, I, I tried it out because I wasn't sure, you know, I'd never sang that heavy before. Right. You know, I, I'd never attempted anything that heavy before because it was all melodic for me. You know, there yeah, was some yeah. edge to it, but there was, it was never that heavy. And um, I, I did two songs. I did Me Inside and uh, Prosthetics. And I rewrote the, the lyrics for, uh, for Me Inside and, and Prosthetics. And it worked, you know, and it was just me, Clown, and Joey in, in the studio. And I, I saw out of the corner of my eye, they both they sat up yeah. as soon as I hit the, the big chorus on Me Inside. And the rest is history. And there you hear Corey Taylor talking about joining Slipknot and actually watching Slipknot a year and a half, almost two years before he joined and thinking, I'm going to sing for that band someday. Pretty good premonition there from Corey. As now we'll hear about Corey talk about the early days of touring. How was that tour overall? That was... Well, I don't, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. He's asking about the, the Cold Chamber tour that we did after OzFest 99, which was actually, it was a damn good tour. Um, for those of you who don't know, we, uh, we opened up for Cold Chamber and, and uh, Machine Head. And our friends, our friends Amen were also on that bill, one of the best fucking bands I've ever seen. That was a crazy fucking tour, man. Like, that was our first real tour. I mean, OzFest... Ozfest is a real tour, but they take care of you. Like there's food, there's fucking bathrooms and shit. Like there's like if you want to take a shit, there, there's a place for you to go. You're like, where's the sh oh, it's over. <laughs> you can go and fucking eat. You can get cleaned up. There are tons of people to fucking hang out with. It was a really fun tour, and then we did the Cold Chamber tour. <laughs> And that was like the real shit. <laughs> that was when you wake up and you're like, oh God, I gotta take a shit at the Dunkin' Donuts. <laughs> Damn it. But it kind of helps that, you know, you're there, you get some coffee, it triggers it anyway. <laughs> I'm just fucking wondering. That 
tour, that was a good learning tour because we were literally living off of about 20 bucks a week um, each. I mean, it wasn't like we were all splitting 20 bucks, but we each had like 20 bucks a week. So we learned to love dollar sandwiches at like the 7-Eleven. We, uh, we, we would, we, we'd steal like all this shit out of the venues. Like somebody would leave a box of like the vending machine chips that shit would disappear. <laughs> and we'd, just, we'd be like, oh, what the fuck you're talking about? <laughs> you know, I mean, we fucking, I have never eaten that many fucking Slim Jims in my life. <laughs> At four in the morning, like a piece of shit. Just fucking standing outside of a truck stop, just fucking going, oh, <laughs> I'm living a dream. The funniest fucking one, I could do a whole book about the truck stops that we fucking stayed at. There was one just outside of fucking Houston that, I swear to God, it was like out of a fucking Stephen King novel. We pull up, there's one light within a fucking two mile radius in either direction. And we pull up and it's like, is this fucking place open? It's, is anyone alive inside? So we all come trotting off, you know, we all smell like fucking each other, which is just gross. And we're like, we're getting ready to walk in and all of a sudden something just fucking, and we're like, what the fuck? There are fucking grasshoppers everywhere. And I mean, in the shop. Like, everywhere you fucking walk. Like, there was no tiptoeing. You just fucking trudged through. And you could hear the... They were fucking everywhere. And I mean, they're on the food. We got, like, so we're like, what the shit? Is it the end times? Is this the fucking, is this the rapture? What the fuck? Why are we in the middle of nowhere during the rapture? So, so we kind of go, like, we're looking for the diner area because there's a huge fucking sign outside that says, Diner, 24 hours, get your food on. So we walk through, and I swear to you, this is a true fucking story. We walk through. There are four of the biggest truckers I've ever seen in my life just sitting in booths, covered in fucking grasshoppers. They, no, they were fucking alive. Oh, wait, wait, the truckers or the grasshoppers? Both, they were both alive. But these motherfuckers just sitting there drinking their coffee. They got their hands over the coffee, just like chilling, like nothing's going on. They're just like, you goddamn grasshoppers. <laughs> and we didn't know how to fucking take it, man. We just kind of stood there, and they were just looking at them, and then they slowly kind of turned their fucking attention towards us. Like they didn't want to rile up the bunch, you know? They're like, they're like, it's slow movements. We don't want to be attacked. And they kind of looked at us. Now imagine us. We've still got kind of fucking like makeup and shit on from our fucking show. You know, we've got black shit on under our masks. And then we do our very best to wipe them off. And we end up looking like My Chemical Romance. <laughs> Trying to fucking figure that shit out. So imagine, there, there's probably about six of us. It was me, Clown, Paul, Joey, and I think Mick was with us, maybe Fane. So we're all fucking in shorts, 
big ass boots, our fucking slipknot windbreakers. But we all look like a cult, basically. And they're turning around at us, and they just kind of fucking, the one dude, he's precious to me to this day, he just kind of looks at me and he goes, hell of a thing, ain't it? I left. Like, I don't want to have anything fucking more to do with this crazy shit. I grabbed a candy bar and I went back to my bunk to fucking pretend it never happened. There you hear Corey Taylor talking about the early days touring with Slipknot. And he's actually had a funny story from the, uh, I do believe it was the Co-Chamber tour in 1999 when they played Detroit. They, uh played Harpo's, which is a famous venue in Detroit. You know how people kind of view Detroit that don't live in Detroit, like that it's a scary place and they see Devil's Night and things like that? Well, people in Detroit are scared of Harpo's. If you don't know Harpo's, just Google search it. But you could either go there and see an awesome show or you might get shot in the parking lot. Either or could happen. And that's the first ever concert I went to. Once I turned 18, I jumped on a Greyhound bus and rode, I believe it was 36 hours total round trip to uh, Columbus, Ohio, then drove up with a friend that I had that lived in Ohio. She uh, didn't live far from Detroit, so he was able to drive up from her house to Detroit and seen uh, ICP and Guar at Hollow Wicket 98 in Harpo's. So whenever I heard him talking about Harpo's, my ears kind of perked up because that always holds a special place in my heart. And here's a funny story from the first tour cycle about Harpo's. So there's no barricade. Everybody's down there. It's gonna be a killer fucking show. I am drunk as shit. But this is back when I drank, and I and I had kind of convinced myself that I can't sing unless I'm fucking wasted. You know? Such an asshole. So we go on stage, right? And this is the first fucking. This is the first run. So I'm about 40 pounds heavier than I am now. Wasted. Dump like 80 fucking bottles of water on me. I come stumbling out. I'm just like, yeah, this is gonna fucking ruin it. I got my fucking. It's the first song. First song. Get inside. Opening with get inside, right? I got both hands on the fucking on the mic stand, and out of nowhere, now I'm, I'm you know, so I'm fucking. I had long hair back then, so I'm swinging the shit out of it. Out of the corner of my eye. I see probably the biggest woman I've ever seen <laughs> start to fucking make her way and she scaled this fucker up. Right? I'm checking her feet for those fucking mountaineer things. She fucking got all the way up. Now mind you, there are fucking security guards on both sides of the stage, right? And they're fucking this, the classic stance. <laughs> <laughs> right? So I'm like, oh, I'm coming, you know? Not only do I have security there, but my old TM at the time, well, tour manager, was standing there, and he's just kind of, you know, he's bopping his head, and I see him notice her, and he goes, that's how big she was. Very athletic, very big, linebacker big. She gets up on stage. Now, Jim is fucking over on this side of the stage. That fucker just gets right out of her way. And refuses to make eye contact. To this day, I'm like, you dick. And this is why, because she fucking, she jumps up, she does her version of the stoner stank, where, you know, people get on stage and they fucking, you know? She just fucking, 
heads right for my ass. And I'm fucking like, I can't get away, I can't get away. She gets right behind me, right? Gets fucking both hands up into my hair. And then proceeds to both force me to headbang and rape me at the same time. So, she's got like a fucking full foot on me. She's also got a foot on each side. <laughs> so true, dude. Salt. So she's just fucking vigorous. And the whole time, the whole time, I was so stunned. I didn't even take my hands off the fucking mic I'm so stunned. The only thing I could say was, would somebody get this huge bitch off of me? <laughs> the fucking security guards are losing their shit. <laughs> Laughing their balls off. They're just fucked. My tour manager, who weighs like a hundred pounds soaking wet, he just comes fucking running up, running up, grabs her, right, and fucking tries to toss her into the audience. He gets one arm around her, and then just kind of, uh, gravity takes over, and that shit parted like a red fucking sea. Over the fucking, over the PA, it was an audible fucking <laughs> And I was like, I kind of... <laughs> Hair's fucking sticking straight up. I look like Robert Smith in the cure. Yeah. Uh, what the fuck? Look up, old man, losing the mind. Remember I'm laughing? Laughing, laughing, because why not? It was funny as shit. So I have a very special fucking, you know, place in my heart, not only for Harpo's, but for Detroit in general. I remember, I remember every fucking place I played, not only here, but in Michigan. I remember the Orbit Room up in fucking Grand Rapids. The first time we played Kobo was fucking huge for me. That's where fucking, that's where Kiss Alive was recorded. Fuck yeah, they don't call it Detroit Rock City for fucking nothing. There you hear Corey Taylor story about Harpo's famous uh, rock slash rap club in Detroit, which I've been to before. So I thought it was super funny because... Harpo's is sketchy for sure, but what we'll do right now is hear Corey Taylor talk about what Slipknot's like pre-show. What's going through your head like before a Slipknot concert, like when you're in the huddle? I know we'll like never understand, but can you explain that to me? What's going through my head before a Slipknot show? I'll build it up towards the huddle. How about that? Um, that's the question that's on the floor. Let me explain to you just what kind of process leads to a very fucked up show, like a Slipknot show. About an hour of stage time, I make my way into the dressing room. And uh, 
I spent 10 minutes talking myself into the fact that I have to put that stinky son of a bitch on. <laughs> About 20 minutes after that, I start putting on black makeup to you know, do a little shading, a little you know, dash of weirdness. And we call it Absu, named after a black metal band from Texas that sent a, uh, an 8x10 to Sean's bar, to Clown's bar back in the day, and it was the funniest fucking picture we'd ever seen. <laughs> they were all in someone's basement, and you could see like mom and dad's schnick schnacks in the background, <laughs> and they're all in horse paint, and they're all in leather, and they're all like, <laughs> I mean, like there's four of them, but then there's fucking mom's Muppet collection, <laughs> just in the background. And we were like, Absu is awesome. <laughs> so we started calling the black makeup Absu. So I'm putting that crap on, knowing full well it's going to take me like three hours and some chiseling to get it off after the show. So I'm like, okay, we'll put it on so heavy today. <laughs> and I ended up doing it anyway. After that, I started putting on the rig. And uh, on this last run, we were doing the rig coveralls. So that was a lot like trying to put a diaper on over your head. <laughs> Because they're all, they're so misshapen. Like, I, I don't know if you've ever worn a pair of coveralls. They are not, they're not developed for comfort or style. It's just, it's open in the areas that you really don't need it to be, and then snug in the areas that really, really are not very complimentary, especially in a cold day. Start fucking getting into that son of a bitch. Ugh. Zip it up. Now, there's about 10 minutes for me to start warming up and shit, which um, I got a, kind of a sore throat, but I will do my very best impersonation of my warming up.
he was one of those dudes that you really, really look forward to seeing every day, you know? And even if you didn't expect to see him, like two weeks before he died, he actually came to a barbecue that I was at my house, and I didn't know he was coming. And I was like, oh, what the fuck, dude? He comes bouncing in, and he's like, hey, what the fuck? I'm cooking, you're eating? Yeah! Balls, anything like that. Every time I hear him, it just gets me going. But um, we hug each other, and then we all bring it in. And we take a second, we kind of focus the energy in. And uh, because we know what we're going to do is uh, a little different, a little <laughs> fucked up. And it's just a special, special place that you have to go to when we go there, you know? And we do it together. And as soon as we're done in that huddle, we are not nine people anymore. We're one band, and that's what's very special about it. And there you hear Corey Taylor talking about what it's like pre-show behind the scenes at a Slipknot show. He talked about Paul there. You heard him talk about a little bit about Paul Gray. And the uh, next album in their discography was released in 2014, titled Point Five, The Gray Chapter. We're going to hear Clown talk about that. At five, The Gray Chapter. It's a very powerful record, and I'm very impressed uh, with everything. It takes a listener to ride from that soft intro right into Sarcastrophe. I mean, a lot of people were waiting for this and waiting for it, and with all you guys have been through, it's just an amazing record, and I really think you, you really made the next chapter great. Thank you very much. Um, we, um, oh, that's really kind of you. We, uh, you know, like everybody in life, sometimes you uh, come across some uh, difficult paths, and uh, one thing that's beautiful about Subnaut is even though sometimes... Um, uh, people and situations in our lives get off on different paths. Uh, luckily and spiritually, uh, those paths always align to one greater path. And that path has always presented itself. Um, so, you know, we pulled together after some just tough things and um, just, you know, our, our tough things, things that we had to deal with. And um, the good news is um, we created a real special thought process for this last album. Um, few of us. You know, it started with Jim in his garage, um, uh, writing music, and then it was Jim and I and the new drummer in L.A. Uh, getting these de demos together, and then it was everybody coming in, and it, we had an open lab where you could go in and be creative, and we kind of, uh, the bottom line is with the new situation of what we created was, one, we took time uh, to actually ask ourselves what we needed, and we followed through. And um, it wasn't always easy because we were used to the way things used to be. And the way things used to be are just ways that we allowed. And we weren't allowing certain things to be anymore. So we, we started a new way. And it was a very comfortable and beautiful um, experience with recording, being together, writing music. There was such a vast amount of music being written and taken serious and we knew we hadn't had an album out in six years and we kind of do what we want and we don't want to write anything that is mediocre to, for us and we feel that that's our uh, bond with our fans is that a um we're going to write for us and only us and as long as we do that you guys will always trust us uh, because we do what we want you're looking for something to trust and if it took six years it took six years but the bottom line is we feel like we deliver we, we created a circumstance that was special special things came out of it out of a lot of uh, drastic things that were happening in our life 
and um, you know it wasn't easy. But at the end of it, we got a great record that we're proud of, and apparently a lot of people are uh, love it, and we love it, and we love playing it. Um, feels like '99 where. We wish we could play more songs. We just keep adding more songs from this album to the set list. And a lot of it is just because of how much crap we've been through and what work it took to make some of these songs. You know, I mean, currently The Devil and I is my favorite to perform. And it's just because of how immersed I was in that song for so long. Um, um, writing it, you know, getting it together, hearing it come along, hearing the first demo from Jim, you know, seeing it as a child and then watching it grow. So yeah, it's a great record. We had a great time doing it. Uh, we, we're so thankful for all the support all the fans waited for us, and it's great. We go out there and play now, and there's 11-year-olds, so it's like the old maggots got kids, and they're, they're bringing it, and it hasn't skipped a beat. You know, I mean, if this was 1999, these would, we would just have all these new fans. It's really, it's really, it's a very, we're very lucky. We're very blessed. Don't take anything for granted. But it's, it's a beautiful thing to see that, you know, in six years, that's a high school and a half generation, generational thing. A whole four years of high school went without any slipknot. And a year before or after, six years. And uh, here we are playing. You got to be careful. Yeah, you got to be careful. And we did it. And, you know, the, it could have just been the other thing. You know, everybody be like, who the fuck cares, you know? Um, but we still have our uh, loyal uh, people, and we look out there, and there's all these young kids, and it's like it's starting all up again, and that makes me happy because that proves that we're more than a band. We're a culture, and I feel like uh, the world's always going to need them some Slipknot, and um, God knows we need a little bit of the world, and, you know, it's all good. Couldn't agree more. The world definitely will always need some Slipknot and music with integrity like Slipknot. That does it for the art, not for the fame or the fortune. Definitely, just anytime Clown opens his mouth and talks about Slipknot, I pretty much wholeheartedly agree. But around the uh, time the Grey Chapter came out, well, not right as soon as the Grey Chapter came out, but while they were still touring, Corey started having some problems with his neck and uh, actually had to have emergency neck surgery. I have a great doctor in L.A., and uh, I started listing off like, all these things that were going on with me, and we're doing you know, the whole physical. And he is, he's kind of the one that spotted that there was an issue with my spine. Okay. And I, uh, so he sent me for an MRI, CAT scan, whole big thing. He uh, sent me to a, a, a spinal cord specialist. Okay. Which freaked me out. Sure. And then sure. he goes, yeah, uh, you essentially broke your neck. Um, wow. A while back. Was it where you suffering from sleeping, things like that? You, could, you just only, couldn't sleep? Yeah, we just oh, pain dude, it's been, it's been a, the last few years of my life. Sure. There's something physically wrong. Like, I had my, uh, the strength on my right side was completely gone. Wow. Like, like I, I had the strength of an 80-year-old, basically. Wow. Um, in fact, I probably would have lost a fight to an actual 80-year-old. Like, that's how bad, <laughs> that's, that's how bad it was. Yeah, you, that would be embarrassing. I mean, yeah, right. I mean, it sucked. Um, I mean, there was a host of different things, but essentially what had happened was, and the only thing that I can think of is I fell off stage in 99 okay. and landed on top of my head. I fell four feet off right. stage, Right. landed, um, being 25, just yeah. kind of, you know, brushed it, it off. off. I can't, you know, I can still feel everything. I must be fine. Right. Meanwhile, what had actually happened was my C5 and C6 uh, basically, uh, it was, you know, compound compressed. fracture, sure. compressed together. 
um, just you crushed the disc. Okay. And then slowly but surely started growing into my spinal cord. Wow. And uh, the doctor couldn't believe that I was walking. He's wow. like, I don't know how you walked in here. And okay. it literally was, we went from zero to surgery like that. And wow. That's why it was emergency spinal surgery. And everybody was like, who has that? And I was like, well, hi, I yeah. do. And I'm not talking about, I mean, dude, being a tough guy is one thing, but what about not, you know, resting, taking yeah. care of this, getting this 100% heal before you even think about. Well, look, I did. I did. Yeah. I, the yeah. doctor told me that I could, you know, I could go out and sing okay. after two weeks. Sure. I waited three, you know, <laughs> okay. I, I made Smart. sure that I could do something, sure. you know? Yeah. There you hear Corey Taylor talking about his emergency spinal slash neck surgery, and you heard that it didn't keep him down very long, and I can report that firsthand as on October 2, 2016, I actually seen Slipknot Live. Uh, Corey was rocking the uh, neck brace, but it didn't really slow him down much. It didn't really, it didn't perfect his vocal performance at all. Still sounded fucking amazing. And another cool thing that happened at Louder Than Life that year, what's what the festival was called in uh, 2016, I got to hear the corn song that featured Corey Taylor from Corn's latest. I do believe it's called Serenity of Suffering. We're going to hear Corn talk about that collabo of Corey right now. I think Corey listened to a lot of the songs and kind of figured out, him and Jonathan and Nick kind of figured out that which song it was going to be. Jonathan was like, maybe he didn't have a, a section for a middle part in one of the songs. And I think that was sort of the consensus that Corey would have been perfect for this. Um, having Nick worked on Stone Sour, we've been friends with guys in Slipknot for many years. It just you know, we're label mates. It, it, things just ended up lining up perfectly. And we did that song, uh, we toured with him a couple years ago. Oh yeah. And we, we went out and did a Beastie Boys tune, Sabotage, on stage with us in Slipknot. It just, in London. And it was just so it's such a great feeling. And that might've had something to do with it too. Kind of fueled a little bit of that, like doing a collaboration. And there you hear Korn talking about the collabo with Corey. Now let's hear Corey talk about the collabo with Corn. Wait, Corn was literally a phone call, like, "Hey, do you want to do this?" And I was on a plane the next day. It was <laughs> I, like I I flew in, hadn't even heard the music. Right. I just flew. I was like, "Yeah," because again, as a fan and as a friend, it was just something that we'd been talking about for years, and all the stars aligned, and I got to do this track, and it is heavy, dude. It is so righteous. People are gonna lose their minds, like. This whole album, and I'm going to brag now because I've heard 11 songs okay. of this. Um, it is such a great throwback to the it's like, it's like the first three Corn albums and mixed with that maturity that they have now. Like, it's really, really heavy. Like, people are going to lose their minds. It's that good. And there you hear Corey Taylor talking about his collabo with Corn. Now, let's go ahead and move to... October 2, 2016, Louisville, Kentucky at the Louder Than Life show, a show I was lucky enough to be somewhere in this mosh pit in attendance to hear A Different World by Korn featuring Corey Taylor.
there you hear Corn featuring Corey Taylor, A Different World from Louder Than Life, October 2, 2016. That was the the concert I got to attend, got to see that in person, which is pretty cool. They ended up making an actual music video from it where they took footage from the concert and laid the actual audio track down. I think it has like three to 5,000 views, so it's cool to, uh, whenever you're looking through YouTube and Corn featuring Corey Taylor's performance comes up. You're like, hey, how's that that show? That's pretty fucking cool. But that's pretty much going to wrap up Notumentary as we're finished with all nine chapters. Chapter eight is officially over. We've talked about every band member. We've talked about every album. Almost had sounds from every tour cycle concert. Talked about the artwork, the masks, the lure of Slipknot. And what I want to do now is before I get out of here, I want to set up the final clip, which is the first time I ever seen Slipknot outside of just hearing their music. It was in 1999 on the Howard Stern Show. And if you remember them talking about they toured with Co-Chamber in 99, well, that was when that tour was going on. And uh, Co-Chamber, before going on tour with Slipknot, was on tour with Insane Clown Posse. Insane Clown Posse kicked Co-Chamber off that tour, so... ICP was going to be at Howard Stern. The uh, Co-Chamber tour was apparently close enough to where they could get Co-Chamber to show up in the studio to kind of get in a fight or an altercation with ICP about being kicked off the uh, tour. If you've ever watched Howard Stern, whenever ICP's on there, that's kind of the thing they do is they find people to fight with him or to fight with uh, the two guys from ICP. And uh, they brought in Co-Chamber thinking that since ICP had kicked Co-Chamber off of their tour early in 99, that Co-Chamber was going to come in there and start beefing. And ICP just kind of laid it all out that it was a business move. It was nothing personal and things like that. So Howard didn't get his fight. But since... Slipknot was touring with Co-Chamber when this Howard Stern interview was recorded. Slipknot was also there with Co-Chamber, being as crazy looking as Slipknot looks. I'm sure the producers at Howard Stern's like, hey, these guys are homies with Co-Chamber. Maybe we'll send these nine crazy looking motherfuckers into the studio and they'll start beefing with ICP. And here's what happened. They weren't drawing nobody. All right, here's another band that wanted to come down and see you. This is called Slipknot. Their new album is Living La Vida Loca. Oh, no. These are the guys we need a security for. Oh, these guys, all right. Slipknot, Living La Vida Loca? La Vida Loco. Oh, La Vida Loca. These guys might be crazy. I don't know. Oh, oh, okay. My God. Now, okay, I've seen these guys. Hey, First guys, of all, thanks for making us wait for fucking ever. Oh no, don't say the F word. Don't say the F word. I like guys, concerned that contributing to my age factor, I'm gonna have a beard and a cane by the time I walk out of this place. Hey, what's up? You're the king, man. We love you. Thank you. Now, First guys, all, you we wear... love you, and you're the king, and I brought presents. Thank you. And you're how many guys are in? How many guys are in the band? boy won't let me bring no. my stuff. What's up? How many guys are in the band? There's nine guys in the band. All right, so there are nine guys, and you guys wear clown masks. No, there's no clown masks. It's one, it's one clown mask. <laughs> one real clown right here, bud. All right, hey, guys. If you have a, if you have eyes, you'll notice that there's one clown. mask. In the band. All right, one clown mask in the bed. All right, so guys. Do you know these guys? Do you, have you, do you guys know these? I'm getting nervous. Do you guys know these guys? <laughs> Never heard of them. What's up, guys? Right, right. Uh, so what, are you mad at insane? I got presents, man. You won't let me bring them in. You're the king. If you don't pay attention, you're probably not going to get your point across. Right. Why are you guys mad at insane clown posse? I don't believe any of us have ever met insane clown posse. Okay. We have nothing but respect for Insane Clown Posse. We never met those guys, so I believe when I heard on the radio earlier that you said that we were mad at them. I thought you were. I thought oh, that's why I you came down you here. Heard wrong. I'll tell you well, one why thing, are you though. Here? Then why are you here? I'll tell you one thing, though. This band looks fresh as hell. <laughs> right. They look- Remember, you hear Slipknot on Howard Stern the first time I ever seen them outside of just being able to hear the uh, self-titled album. I thought it was pretty fucking cool because... 
you think about it, they're touring with Co-Chamber. Co-Chamber's managed by Sharon Osbourne. So those are two huge, at the time, names in the metal world. So it would have benefited Slipknot greatly to go in there and start a fight with ICP because that's what Sharon Osbourne wanted because she was mad that ICP had kicked Co-Chamber off. It's what Co-Chamber wanted because Co-Chamber was kicked off the ICP tour. It's definitely what Howard Stern wanted, which is a huge media giant that could possibly promote your album now and forever if he takes a liking to you but Slipknot instead of going in there being phony ass posers they just can't do that they're like we have no problem with ICP we knew that if we said that we had a problem with ICP it would get us on the show but we don't have a problem with ICP so we can't sit up here in front that left an impression on me in 1999 and still does that anything that this band says is pretty fucking genuine they're not going to – if they didn't go out of their way right there for three of the biggest clientele they could have to help their career out with Howard Stern, Sharon Osbourne, and Co-Chamber at the time, then they truly will always give you 100% what they think and how they feel, and that's exactly why we all love Slipknot. Slipknot is on a mission. The mission is a war. We've declared it. Um, every night is a battle. We choose our battles. Um, our mission is to have world domination and destroy the industry because I still hold a judge for the non-believers who didn't believe in us. And, you know, all that really matters is the maggots out there. They're our children, and we love each and one of them. So sometimes sacrifice, and sometimes uh, I like to call it the awakening. And every night, <clears throat> it's a absolute must for my tour manager to uh, have a flashlight um, shining up the ramp and the reason why is because I need to be aware that I'm going into battle and sometimes when we're victorious like we usually are when we're in the ball of um, energy um, you were there tonight bro. yeah we're we, we try to get there every night you know we are human we don't pretend to be anything else we're not superhuman we're just normal human beings with uh, an, an intense goal and uh, sometimes um, I uh, have to have a liberating feeling and um, sometimes the awakening can be very scary things but I assure you that everything in our show is not fake and everything that we do comes from the heart and sometimes it's uh, you know impossible to live and sometimes you have to remind yourself to feel and that's why we do what we do <laughs> 